Let's get into it. It's the undertaker, arguably the greatest character the WWE ever created. And Bruce was there from the very beginning. Uh, we're going to give you 1993 and 94 today with a little bit of a preamble about what happened before then. Uh, don't worry. We are going to have more undertaker episodes in the future, but it's impossible guys for us to cram 26 years into three hours. It just can't happen. Uh, so instead, we're going to break it down a couple years at a time. Why did we start with 93-94? Well, it's easy. Uh, Undertaker comes in in November of 90. Bruce is out of the company by May of 91. Bruce is back in late August 92. So if we're going to go chronologically covering a full calendar year, 93 and 94 are as early as we can go. Uh, but we'll give a little bit of backstory. But before we get there, I guess we should talk about the Undertaker's last match. And we saw that at WrestleMania 33, Bruce, you weren't there at the event, but you were in town and I know you watched it on the WWE network. What'd you think of Taker's last match? I thought it was apropos and I cried like a bitch. It was, uh, it was a nice ending of a chapter if you ask me, but I don't think it's over. What do you mean you don't think it's over? You think he's going to wrestle again? Eventually, yes, I do. Well, that's a hot take that nobody's talking about. The rumor and innuendo is that he's going to have major hip replacement surgery. Are you saying that's not going to keep him from coming back? I'm saying short of being wheeled down to the ring in a wheelchair that we've not seen the last of the Undertaker in the ring. Now, he would argue with me on that and say, no, that's it. But you never say never in this business, and The Undertaker in that character will live on forever, and I think that he could still go out and have a match. May not be what it was 25 years ago, but by God, he'll go out, and the people will be behind him just as much as they ever were. Well, 
he certainly deserves it. And uh, we're going to talk about all things Undertaker today. Um, we're going to go ahead and, I guess, try to start at the beginning. <laughs> he was born on March 24th, 1965. He's a 52-year-old man now. He's uh, a young man. Absolutely. Mark Calloway was the birth name, of course. And from right there in your old stomping grounds, Houston, Texas. Uh, he starts wrestling in 1984 for World Class. He makes his debut there as Texas Red. He runs through a few gimmicks early in his career. He bounces around Memphis. He's managed by Dutch Mantel. He has some uh, matches with Kerry Von Erich. He wins some gold in Memphis and then eventually moves on to WCW. While he's in Memphis, he is wrestling as the Punisher or the Master of Pain. He finds his way to WCW in 1989, and he gets his first big break there when Sid Vicious is injured and Dan Spivey is looking for a tag team partner to be his new skyscraper tag team partner. And mean Mark Callis gets the nod. I think he starts as Callaway there, but then later uh, changes his name to mean Mark Callis. And he has his maybe biggest victory in WCW when he beats flying Brian Pillman at clash of the champions 11. He uses a heart punch as a finisher at this time. And he gets, Yet another manager, which I find interesting considering what happened at WrestleMania 30. The manager is Paul E. Dangerously. So in a weird way, The Undertaker was one of the original Paul Heyman guys. Oh, Happy Heyman, the jovial Jew. We we uh, We can't say the name Paul Heyman on this show without you breaking out a fun impression for us, though. Hypothetically, if... Paulie dangerously at the time was going to champion his man, mean Mark Callis in a creative meeting that he should go over flying Brian Pillman and what would probably be considered an upset since Pillman was pretty over at that point. What might that sound like? If I may have another volley, sir, allow me to explain to you why this big redheaded monster needs to take out the flying one with a heart punch. He will destroy him, sir. And Pillman is down in five seconds. Never to return because everyone knows he has a heart condition. I love that. Thank you for that. Uh, His next big shot is for the U.S. title against Lex Luger at the Great American. I will one day get him booked and I will deliver a defeat to him at the hands of my, I don't know what the fuck he called. What was he called Brock? Uh, the beast incarnate. No, his client or what the hell. He's an, he's an advocate for. I will be the advocate for the man that will finally defeat him in an event. They will hail as mania of wrestling, (laughs) sir. You may continue. If you would like the event to go 10 seconds, I don't have a problem with that either. Here's what's crazy. Uh, when he's managing him here. That match we're referencing at WrestleMania 30 is 25 years later. That's absurd. A little bit. Uh, His biggest match that we talked about in our previous episode, which if you really want to hear about the debut of The Undertaker, we encourage you to go check out Survivor Series 1990. It's available in the archives, and it's notable for two things. Well, a lot of things. But the two biggest ones being The Undertaker's debut when he was Kane The Undertaker, and what else is notable about Survivor Series 1990, Bruce? Come on, Cooker. I was hoping you'd do that. 
anyway, you guys kind of you guys kind of discover him at this Great American Bash 1990. He is challenging for the United States Championship. The champ at the time, of course, is the total package Lex Luger, and that winds up being his last major appearance. Uh, he slowly fades away and then signs with the WWF. Now, there's various different reports about how that happens. Let's touch on it again here. Do you remember it that Mark was released from his contract by WCW or that he waited his contract out so he could sign with Vince? He waited his contract out. His contract was coming up for renewal. And I got a phone call one day from Paul Heyman, sir, if I may. Are you aware of the young man named Mean Mark Callis? And I was a big fan of, of Mark's uh, going back to 1987 and seeing him in WCCW or USWA, whatever the hell it was. And I was very, very aware of him. I was a big fan of him. And I said, yeah, definitely interested. And so then began the pursuit to get Mean Mark into the WWF. So let's talk about it. He debuts on November 19th, 1993 in Rochester, New York, defeating a gentleman named Jim McPherson. What are your favorite matches with Jim McPherson, Bruce? I have no idea who the hell Jim McPherson is. Sorry. Mm. Uh, The next night, he defeats Dusty Rhodes in Syracuse, New York, and he's also interviewed by Brother Love. And that airs on the Wrestling Challenge episode from December 23rd, 1990. So if you'd like to see his first ever interview that he did for television uh, with the WWF, you can go check that out. Wrestling Challenge, December 23rd, 1990. But then he makes his television debut that we're all familiar with on Survivor Series 1990, and that is November 22nd. So he actually debuted with the company a couple of days ahead of time. And when he makes his debut, of course, on Survivor Series, he's the mystery partner for the Million Dollar Man's team uh, and has one hell of a debut. Again, that whole episode is available in the archives, 1990 Survivor Series. Catch everybody up, though, again, Bruce, as to why you would want to debut a character like this at a house show rather than a pay-per-view ahead of time. Just to get his sea legs under him, and he had never worked in our ring before. Our ring was bigger than the WCW rings. It was much less forgiving. It also had ropes versus cables and just didn't want the very first time for him to step into a WWF ring to be on pay-per-view. So Paul Bear is introduced as The Undertaker's new manager on The Brother Love Show, and this aired on Superstars. On February 16th, 1991. So if you'd like to see Paul Bearer in his debut for The Undertaker, it's February 16th, 1991 on Superstars. But a lot of people may not realize that Percy Pringle was actually, once upon a time, working with Mark Calloway in a prior life. Catch everybody up, Bruce. Well, Percy Pringle was actually Mean Mark or The Punisher, whatever the hell name he was using at that time. He was actually his first manager in Dallas for his very first match. And I want to say that one of Mark's first matches was against Bruiser Brody. And Brody was actually very kind to him and and helped him out quite a bit and didn't just go out and beat the shit out of him for that match. But it was it was ironic that his his first manager wouldn't end up really being his last manager. 
So let's run through it. 1991 uh, highlights. Uh, of course, we know WrestleMania 7 was against Jimmy Snuka. WrestleMania 7, once again, we've already covered in our archives if you'd like to hear more about that. But we also saw him feud with the Ultimate Warrior, and we saw a series of body bag matches, which is probably the first time a body bag had been in the WWF, wouldn't you imagine? In in the ring itself or just in general? <laughs> well, that sounds like a good story. Let's start with in general. No, I think that was the first time. Well, just let's say let's stick with that. Yeah, you know the the whole the whole idea behind the body bag was it was so much easier than trying to get a casket every night and having to to deal with caskets. So the body bag was something that Paul Bearer and the ring crew that could buy a bunch of body bags, and Paul could get a discount on them because he was actually a mortician and. So we got a ton of body bags carried around on the ring truck. I know we're not going to uh, explore it in great detail, but we have to cover the ultimate warrior on the funeral parlor uh, where the, I was there for that. Well, I, I know you were there, but I'm saying we, we promised 93, 94, but I at least want to touch on it. I'm sure we'll come back and we'll cover it in great detail at some other time, but catch me up. This is one of my favorite memories of the funeral parlor because well, I'll let you take it from here. <laughs> well, the the whole idea was simply to bury the ultimate warrior. and Not the way you buried him on our show in the archives, but a different type of burial. A real burial. But um, on, on TV, let's put it that way. Well, no, I did that. I did that, too. <laughs> so... But it was a way to get the whole Ultimate Warrior and Undertaker angle started to have the Undertaker place him in a casket and seal the casket airtight so that no air could get in. I, I always loved that because if you have ever buried someone or you know had to deal with funeral arrangements and things like that really the the air tightness comes in the the sarcophagus gimmick the concrete gimmick that goes on top of the casket itself but nonetheless vince vince had this thing about i want to i want to seal the casket i want to hear the air come out of that casket so when you you turn the light you hear the air and it's his last breath but the idea was simply to, to bury the ultimate warrior, put him in there. And we had the casket all made up all nicey, nice with the ultimate warriors face on, on the casket special for him. And we wanted warrior to claw at that and, and claw at the insides of it. So that when they finally did get the casket open, that it looked like warrior was just clawing for his life to finally get out of that casket. But the hindsight being 2020, there's a picture out there somewhere on, on Twitter and what have you of Vince in the casket Yep, that day. And we all, we went, it was, we took a road warrior Hawk with us to the funeral parlor because we had to buy a casket. Now there was a law that you could not sell caskets. So if you just wanted to buy a casket to have in your home or for a talking point or whatever. You couldn't just go buy a casket. <laughs> Who the fuck's buying a casket for a talking point? Well, I don't know. There's a lot of weird people in this world. I'm not going to mention Jim Cornette's name, but there, you know, um, wait, wait, wait. There, 
What would Jim Cornette shopping for a casket sound like? Goddamn. You're going to bury me in the motherfucker. I'm not going to live in there forever. Goddamn. What the fuck? No, I don't know. Um, I need double <laughs> pillows, double satin. <laughs> you know, the funniest thing about this weekend that we'll talk about in a little bit was Jim Cornette doing me doing Jim Cornette. That sounds kinky. So let's get uh, back well, to Vince. And a so casket. we get back. So we get back to the casket. You couldn't just go buy a casket. Is illegal. So we had to use Paul Bearer's mortician license and pull oh some my. strings to get people to actually sell us a casket. So we took Road Warrior Hawk with us because he was about the same size as Ultimate Warrior to measure <laughs> to see if he fit the casket. Why didn't Ultimate Warrior go casket shopping? Are you serious with that question? Well, why did Hawk have to go? Why couldn't Warrior go? He was probably busy eating chicken breasts and working out or something. Who knows? Chicken breasts and dry pasta. I don't know. He couldn't be inconvenienced. I don't really know. But we took Hawk because he was there. And he was the same size. And we, if it fit him, then we knew it would fit Warrior. So we went. And for those of you who have not yet been in a casket, a casket is <laughs> simply the most. For those of you who have not yet. Who the fuck listening has been in a casket? You're into some I, weird shit, dude. You know what? I bet you there's some people out there that have that have tried out a casket before. I don't buy that. I'm just saying. But we all we all got in the casket to it just that's kinda like a I don't know. I got a picture right up there on my wall of me in a casket with Erwin R. Shyster. But it's the most uncomfortable friggin' thing in the world. You because know, obviously the person going in it is dead. They don't necessarily have to be comfortable. But you look at them, they look like the most comfortable things in the world when people are laying there right before you bury them. Do they not? Hypothetically, if the undertaker had tagged with IRS, would they have called the tag team Death and Taxes? You laugh. That was an idea at one point. <laughs> no. Are you serious? You're over there playing ha-ha and shit, and, and that was actually kicked around at one point. So everybody laid in it and, and their, their metal. So we had to figure out how to make it so that we wouldn't kill Warrior when we put him in the casket because it's just metal beams and screws and shit sticking out that are pretty damn uncomfortable. So we get it. We got to gimmick the bottom of it and put padding in there and, and all this other shit. But everybody had to take pictures laying in the casket. And there, like I said, there's a famous one events out there. And it's me and Jack Lanza, Pat Patterson, and a few other people standing around it. So we we got everything set up, but what they got Warrior in it and said, okay, they're going to turn this lock. And when they turn the lock, the only way to get out of it at that point is we have to pry it open. So we gimmicked the lock so that we could get him out, but... The best part of all was once they put a warrior in there and the agents come out, if you go back and watch the tape, Jack Lanza has a sledgehammer. And they beat the living fuck out of that casket before they finally get him out. Because Warrior wasn't the most popular guy in the world. And truth be told, if it were real life and people had to run out there to go save him <laughs> from a casket or from a fire, you know, people might bring a couple cups of water and throw it on him, but very few are going to be carrying buckets. 
So they took their time, and Lanza had an extra bit of fun just slamming the sledgehammer <laughs> into the side of the casket because he's in this metal casket, and you hear the BAM! and just kind of ricocheting in his head. But it was hilarious. And Terry Garvin, there's a great shot of Terry Garvin with a, uh, a drill. I've got a drill, but it wasn't plugged in. It was just, it was like the fucking Keystone Cops, them coming out to rescue the warrior. But that was kind of the backstory on Ultimate Warrior being buried on the funeral parlor. It entertained us more than anybody else. Well, it was entertaining to us. Uh, and then they show, they kind of censor this, I think. And they show the uh, the Ultimate Warrior going into like convulsions and spitting shit up. And um, it was crazy. Hypothetically. When they're producing that scene of the medical people working on the Ultimate Warrior, what might that have sounded like if Vince was directing? All right, pal. Now, this is serious. When you get back here, we'll have the medical crew all around. And, guys, this is very solemn because we don't know exactly what condition Warrior's in. And when they start to bring you back... And you've got to be coughing and spewing and just uh, uh, gasping for that last breath. Just imagine. This is your very last breath, but you've got one more in ya. And guys, everybody just be chaotic around here. I don't fucking know. Something like that. But yeah, it was, uh, he just wanted chaos. We needed chaos. Whose uh, whose idea was the whole body bag gimmick? I want to say it was Paul Bear's because it was easy and it had never been done before, and it was something that could be done. This is this is the other thing people forget a lot. It was something that could be done with everybody. Yeah. So, like when guys have these great finishes and, and they do this spectacular finish that. They can only do on a guy that's 120 pounds and five foot nothing. All of a sudden, you get in the ring with Braun Strowman and you can't do it. The body bag we could do with everybody. Hey guys, are you looking for the perfect Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transform your photos into a -a one-of-a-kind hand-painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload photos of anything you can imagine. You choose the artists and the art medium. They've even got great frames. It all takes less than five minutes to get started, and you can get your portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text the word wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four. That's wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four text wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Um, he's, he, talk to me about the Ultimate Warrior. I want to talk a little bit more about this because I know some of that happened before you left. Ultimate Warrior working with The Undertaker. Have you spoken to Taker about what it was like working with Warrior? Did Warrior get along with Taker? Obviously, at that time, Taker was still very new to the company and probably wanting to uh, just kind of get along in his new position. The Warrior was the top guy. But we don't ever hear any stories, really, of them working together. Do you have anything you could share with us? You know, Taker just wanted to get along, and Taker was happy to be in a top spot. And it was a top spot working with Ultimate Warrior. It was a big angle. It was a big deal. Taker simply was happy to be there, I guess. You know, And he just wanted to do whatever whatever he needed to do to get along and make it work. But... I don't. I think you would be hard pressed to find anybody that that ever said they really enjoyed working with Warrior. It was he was stiff, he was uh, sloppy, and but Baker was a double tough son of a bitch, especially back in those days. How appropriate that uh, we're, we're burying a guy when we're covering a topic based on character name, The Undertaker. Uh, after the body bag matches with the ultimate warrior, he feuds with Sid justice and Sid wins a lot of these mostly on the house show loops though. But I did find this interesting in my research on September 12th, 91 in Maine, uh, hot rod is substituting for Sid justice and he beat the undertaker in a body bag match. I found that interesting. Why is that? I don't know. I just did the idea that. Piper beat the Undertaker in a body bag match. Just, huh? Well, the the, the philosophy behind that substitution wanting to leave the crowd happy. He goes on to work a series of matches in the house shows with uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, but he gets his big break, and this is a show that we'll probably never cover because Bruce wasn't there. But the 1991 Survivor Series, he actually beats Hulk Hogan for the championship, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past. There was a considerable amount of heat on the Undertaker, uh, right after, because Hogan may or may not have suggested that uh, the Ultimate Warrior dropped him on his head. Now, if you go back and you watch the videotape, Taker could not have protected him anymore. He takes a tombstone onto the chair that was slid into the ring by the Nature Boy Ric Flair. But ultimately, Hogan's head is 8 or 12 inches away from the mat, so he took care of him. I uh, kind of tell everybody how that affected the ultimate warrior and his relationship with Hulk Hogan moving forward. It didn't affect the ultimate warrior at all, but it did affect the undertaker. I think that he was, ah, you know, that night and he was upset because he, he didn't know, you know, what had happened. He didn't know if he had hurt him or not. And I don't think that anybody really knew at that point. However, in later years, uh, didn't set well with him. And he was unhappy over the fact once he got to see the tape and saw that, you know, hey, man, I took good care of you. 
that it continued on that there was a perception that he didn't. So, uh, again, I, I think if you were to poll, same thing, like I said, with Ultimate Warrior, if you were to ask guys who said that he wasn't stiff and was, was a good worker, you wouldn't you wouldn't find a lot of people. If you were to ask people on the other side of that, if Undertaker was stiff or sloppy or uh, – hurt anybody you wouldn't you find very few people that would ever come up and say otherwise take your pills you old fuck they're in the other house oh see last week if you saw on twitter bruce bragged that he not only had a pool and a hot tub but he also had a lake in his backyard well now since the show is blown up so damn much and we're doing live shows now he's actually saying oh they're in the other house must be his summer home. You know what I mean? It's I'm in the, I'm in my goddamn garage office. You gotta it's get in hot the house. about it. Don't get hot about it. I'm I'm hot. I'm about half hot. Yeah. Okay. Make fun of me saying Ultimate Warrior, and you're over there fucking doing your Daffy Duck routine. So after this, they book Tuesday night in Texas again. Bruce was not there for this. Uh, I was this, Tuesday night in Texas. Okay. Fucking there. Take it from here. Tell us all about I was there? it. There. Great. Let's hear all about it. Was it in Austin or was it in San Antonio? I don't know. I don't know. You were there. there. I was there. Mm-hmm. I was backstage. Vince was telling me how much everybody hated me. And Taker dropped the title back to Hulk Hogan. Anything else? I thought we were talking about 92 93. Well, I was trying to lay a little background. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupt now. You're going to be mad. No, fine. There you go. You wanted your story about Tuesday night in Texas? Bruce told it. 1992. Let's get into it. He has a series of matches with Sid Justice. Uh, and then on a January 28th edition of Superstars, we see the funeral parlor segment where Jake Roberts attacks The Undertaker when The Undertaker has his arm locked in a casket. Paul Bear gets the DDT, and The Undertaker starts to give chase to Jake, dragging uh, the casket. I've always been curious about this funeral parlor set because obviously this talk show format has been a big deal in the company going all the way back to uh, Roddy Piper. And, of course, we know there was the Barber Shop and the Snake Pit and Piper's Pit. Of course, the Brother Love Show. Who was in charge of designing these sets? At that time, it was probably a, a guy named Dr. Paint who d- designed a lot of stuff backstage and, and designed some of those sets. But that was... Richie Posner was a little bit before that and after that, but Dr. Paint was the guy that we, we traveled with. So would Dr. Paint get all of the future caskets too, now that you guys had the Paul Bear hookup, or would Paul Bear continue to do that? We had to use Paul's license, but yes, he would. Uh, of okay, course, that segment on the funeral parlor sets up the WrestleMania 8 match with Jake Roberts and The Undertaker. Then The Undertaker has a feud with the Berserker, and a match with Kamala at SummerSlam 92, which is pretty famous for his entrance there. And then Bruce comes back. So September of 1992, he goes into a series of matches for the WWF Championship, this time against Ric Flair, and he wins most of them by disqualification. So I'm curious, Bruce, there is an evolution of the character here where he's dead and all the announcers and children are scared of him. And now he's a babyface. Who decides, hey, man, I think this guy could be a babyface. You know, it's funny. Back in 1990, we went to the gym one day. It was myself, Vince, and 
The Undertaker. And I was playing uh, ACDC, Hell's Bells, and I was explaining to Vince that I wanted to do a video. I said, God, we, we've got to get the rights to this song and do a video for The Undertaker. He looked at me. I said, God damn, pal. That'll make him a baby face. I've got plenty of years as a nasty heel before I make that turn. And what a baby face he'll make. And we all kind of chuckled, thinking, how the fuck do you make this big, ugly bastard a baby face? Right. But then, as time went on, and you started listening to the crowd, boy, they, they loved him. They they just, it, it did not take long for the audience to, to turn Undertaker baby face. So, this is during a time in late 92 here, where... The WWF is in a little bit of a transition. Uh, the Undertaker during this time is working a series of matches with Papa Shango, Nails, Razor Ramon, guys like that. Uh, but the Ultimate Warrior experiment, the rose was off the bloom, so to speak. He had the alleged incident at SummerSlam 91 uh, where he's difficult about money and is ultimately let go. He comes back. But then he has a steroid issue in November of 92. That throws Survivor Series 92 into a little bit of a tailspin. And ultimately, they talk Mr. Perfect into coming back out of retirement to step in. In hindsight, do you think The Undertaker wasn't ready to be in that main event spot yet? Who was not buying into The Undertaker being a suitable headliner for Survivor Series 92? I don't know if he wasn't ready to step into that spot. But I think Vince just had, had a different vision in his head and thought that if perfect were to come back and perfect were to come back as a baby face at that time, that it just would have fit the situation better. That that's pretty much it. It was just a feel and what he had in his head. He being Vince. All right. So before we wrap up 1992, I don't know when we'll talk about this again. So uh, let's just, Throw it out here. It's directly from the Wrestling Observer newsletter. Uh, the hundred and fifty thousand dollars. How do you say Nail's last name? Wachholz. Wachholz. Okay. Was allegedly trying to extort from McMahon at the time of the incident that was talked about by a Titan PR firm was, according to one WWF source, money he wanted to be paid in advance for putting the Undertaker over every night at the house shows. The SummerSlam payoff he was unhappy about was reportedly $8,000. Do you remember hearing that the beef that he had with the company was over A, a SummerSlam payoff being eight grand, or B, him being him wanting to be paid in advance for losing to The Undertaker? I've never heard anything about him wanting to be paid in advance for The Undertaker. His beef, to my knowledge, he had two beefs. One was his SummerSlam payoff, and the other one was a uh, Vince McMahon drug test. Pecker. Oh, wasn't that? And that's what that's what had him all upset was a, a result of a drug test that he was complaining about, and that got him all fired up. And then the uh, the payoff situation was was the other one. I've never I've never heard anything about one hundred fifty thousand dollars to put undertaker over that's crazy all right um 
There's rumor and innuendo out there that uh, Nails accused McMahon of uh, sexual assault or whatever the case may be. Give me something. Well, um, they had a big argument. Earl Hebner uh, witnessed the thing through through the door because it was heated and it was loud. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So there was wait, no... wait, 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 stop, stop. Earl Hebner witnessed it through the door. It was heated and loud. Yeah. I asked if there was a sex incident, and you said Earl watched. You like the was... way you like the way that you like the way that I, I phrase all that. See, I, I saved really... that for the payoff. That no, there was no uh, sexual harassment or touching <laughs> of any way, shape, or form. It was a heated argument with uh, nails doing a y- lot of yelling and screaming, and and <laughs> and then lunged at Vince. Choking him, kind of tumbling over, tumbling Ben's ass over tea kettle in his chair. Allegedly, doesn't Nails start screaming when people start to come in the room? He touched my dick or something like that. I have no idea. I wasn't there for it, so I don't know. The, but I, I don't know. The way I hear Sarge it is, and, Sarge and Arnie Skolan were the were the first two in there. The way I hear it, when people start coming in the room, he starts screaming and pointing. He touched my dick. He touched my oh dick. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which is just only in wrestling. Only, only in, wrestling. in wrestling, folks. Oh, <laughs> God damn, only in the WWF. <laughs> uh, who knows when we'll talk about nails again. Okay. 1993 is right around the corner. Uh, but first, let's talk about the Wrestling Observer Newsletter's awards issue. He got an honorable, oh boy. He got an honorable mention for Best Babyface, number Who's five. He, pal? Goddamn pronouns, pal. Well, we're talking about The Undertaker, sir. Try paying attention. He got an honorable mention in Most Overrated. I found that interesting. Uh, but then he gets Best Gimmick, number one. I found that kind of interesting because it feels like in hindsight, a lot of people would have been negative on this gimmick. But it seems as if the fans, even back then, were the smart marks were super into it. He starts 93, uh, working house shows, mainly with Yokozuna and Papa Shango. Uh, he's going over Papa Shango in most of early January uh, around the loop. They're drawing decent enough crowds, I guess, for 93, 4,800 folks in St. Louis, 1,900 in Des Moines, 6,300 in Philadelphia, 5,800 in Boston. Uh, he has a segment on Wrestling Challenge in January 4th where he takes on Razor Ramon. Uh, Razor walks out after sustaining a choke slam and is ultimately counted out. This seems like a little bit of an odd pairing because Razor was one of your guys you were trying to get over in a big way in early 93. But he's facing The Undertaker. Doesn't that seem like an odd pairing for a wrestling challenge to you? No, it was probably just an opportunity to get both guys on in a starting position, but obviously there was no finish in it. So in that regard, all's good. No harm, no foul. No no harm, no foul, no finish. <laughs> there you go. Uh, he does another uh, Superstars taping the very next day, this time in San Antonio, Texas. Here he defeats Yokozuna by DQ when Yoko repeatedly hits Taker with the salt bucket. Uh, and this is after Taker sat up from Yoko's belly-to-belly suplex. After the match, uh, Taker seemingly avoids the bonsai drop 
and takes Yoko down with a flying clothesline and a choke slam. Uh, that match is actually on a couple of VHSs, Bashed in the USA and Undertaker, his gravest matches. Um, catch me up on the sit-up. There's been lots of rumor and innuendo about how that came to be, what the inspiration for that was. A lot of people are freestyling, oh, it's from the movie Jason. Uh, what is the sit-up from? Do you remember there being a conversation about the genesis of that? Stole it from Michael Myers in Halloween. There you go. I like it. I loved, Hall- I loved Halloween, and Mark did the sit-up. And I, I, Well, actually, it suggested the sit-up originally. He did the sit-up, and the head, it was his deal for the head snap, and it was born. But he would take a lot of people's, you know, suggestions. I, I loved, I loved walking the ropes. One of the things going back, if you go back and you watch when Undertaker first debuted, I would write down every single match, and with the exception of the finish, he didn't do the same match twice on TV. A lot of guys at, at the time, they had their TV match. They were going to get their spots in. They were going to go out and have their match, and that was their match no matter who their opponent was. With Undertaker, we would always add a couple things and subtract a couple things in every match on TV so that he would be different. Uh, We always did the rope walk. We always did the tombstone, but those were the only two signatures that we tried to keep in on every match. Everything else was different. So subliminally, I think people like that, and I think that, that's another reason why Undertaker was so popular because he was different. You didn't get the same thing every time you saw him. Yeah, no doubt. And I think that's one of the things that resonated uh, with everybody. Let's rapid fire some 1993 now. Uh, the Undertaker headlines the very first episode of Monday Night Raw on January 11th, 1993, in a victory over Damian Demento. So we're going to talk about the very first episode of Monday Night Raw and the creation of Raw on a future episode, I'm sure. But two things. One, why do you guys decide he's the headliner for the first show? And two, got any good Damien Demento stories? <laughs> Damien's crazier than uh, batshit, man. He was, Damien Demento was a guy that was on the independence at the time in the Northeast with this crazy look. Great body, crazy look. Uh, I like the gimmick. So we reached out to him, wanted to bring him in. We thought that we could actually do something with him. Monday Night Raw, the first show, it was Demento's debut, as a matter of fact. So thought, okay, let's let's see what he's got. Put him in there with The Undertaker. But he just, it was kind of like Saba Simba. Once all the gimmick and all the shit came out off and the bell rang, there just wasn't a whole lot of anything special there. So uh, we just thought, you know, to be different, Undertaker was was the Undertaker, and he was a great attraction, so that was a, a good main event to put him up against a unique character for his first time ever. All right, so the next major event, 1993, is the Royal Rumble uh, this one takes place in Sacramento on January 24th. It draws a 1.2 buy rate. Uh, this makes uh, Titan share about 2.85 million. 
And with the exception of Tuesday in Texas in 91, it's the lowest buy rate of any Titan pay-per-view in history. Uh, a drop of 10 to 15% from the previous low, which was the 92 Survivor Series, which also had a higher price tag. So it's a double whammy in that it's cheaper and less people are watching it. Uh, Meltzer wrote in the February 1st edition of The Observer, unannounced, uninvited, not involved in the match, comes out <laughs> the nearly eight feet tall and growing by the day, formerly known as Eligante, with a new beard, wearing what appeared to be an Ultimate Warrior old underwear, skin-colored body tights with muscles drawn on them, that the tailor accidentally made a few sizes too big. He got in the ring and did the stare down with Undertaker. The stare down wasn't bad, but then he threw the first punch. It reminded me of a show at the Meadowlands a few years back when Eligante and Sid Vicious were on opposite sides in a six man and everyone wanted to see them lock up. Once they locked up and Eligante threw the first blow, nobody wanted to see either of them ever again. Well, he threw the first blow and that hurt it live. John Gonzalez will draw a lot of money, but the amount of money he'll draw is directly proportional to the lack of actual body contact anyone sees. Anyway, he destroyed The Undertaker and threw him over in 30 minutes and 52 seconds. An Undertaker laid on the apron dead until a few minutes later when the ghost of Percy Pringle showed up with the urn and he limped out of the ring. So you guys are already kind of angling for... WrestleMania nine with giant Gonzalez by rumble 93. Do you guys know, as soon as you sign giant Gonzalez, goddamn palace, put him with taker. Is that always the plan? Like even signing him? Hey, here's where we're going to start him with. Or how does taker draw the short straw here? The idea in signing giant Gonzalez was obviously for the attraction of having a damn near eight foot giant. The, idea would put him with undertaker was it was a big man it was a natural attraction and we figured that undertaker would be able to get a match out of him unfortunately that's one feat that undertaker just wasn't capable of doing yeah i can't believe that i actually half-ass agree with Meltzer on his description of that but fuck him anyway Real Tide, we'll get there and talk about Meltzer uh, a little later. Uh, so you guys start angling there on February 13th, 1993. It's the first WrestleMania 9 report where it's announced Undertaker is going to face Giant Gonzalez. Uh, on the house shows, he's beating Razor Ramon by countout. He's beating Bam Bam Bigelow. He's pinning IRS with the tombstone. There's our death and taxes gimmick. Uh, and then on the February 2nd edition... We get a comment from Dave Meltzer. It says, can you believe Titan now has four face managers, Paul Bearer, Sherry Martell, Jimmy Hart, and Slick, and only two heels, Mr. Fuji and Harvey Whippleman. And look at the two heels. They sure either need a new manager or to turn one of the old ones since Sherry and Hart just turned and Slick's character won't be turned and Undertaker probably can't be turned. I don't think we'll see the latter. Uh, little did we know. The Undertaker was always going to be able to flip-flop for the rest of his career. Uh, but th it's interesting to me to bring this up here because there were, at this time, six managers. How many managers are there in the WWE now? There 
is an advocate, sir. I am not a manager. Isn't that crazy? There you go. I, I've always been a big fan of managers, and I think that they enhance the right talent, and I think that there are some talent that may be limited with their verbal skills that could be main event top guys if they only had the right mouthpiece. They took a European tour in February of 93, uh, hitting England and Germany. Uh, most of the cards look identical. The Undertaker spends a lot of time working with Papa Shango. Uh, in real life, uh, Papa Shango and The Undertaker are pretty good buds. Do I have that right? They're best of friends. Yes, they are. From way back. Uh, I don't know how that comes about. Can you kind of catch everybody up? Well, they both they both started down in Dallas, and they they trained together. They shared a lot of common interests, and in far as far as motorcycles and um, gentlemen's establishments. So <laughs> they just kind of hit it off, and we're good friends from day one. Um. Okay, I guess we'll move along there. I don't guess you have any good Papa Shango Undertaker strip club stories you could share right now, do you? Wow. <clears throat> I don't know that there's really any I can share, even even at this point, but we had some good times back in the day. Undertaker was quite the connoisseur, and <laughs> there, uh, there was a time, man, he, he knew exactly where to go, and everybody knew him, and you could walk in and be escorted right back to a VIP section of the bar, and nobody would mess with you, and we had a lot of fun back in the day. Let me ask this. Um what does the undertaker refer to those establishments as strip clubs, shoe show, ballet, the bar. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. For us, it was just the bar. So when undertaker says, let's go to the bar, he's not talking about happy hour down at the Applebee's. Well, nowadays he probably is <laughs> back in the day. It, uh, we, we knew where we were going. So let's get into some fun stuff here. Uh, I guess before we do, we should mention he actually beat Ric Flair in Germany in February of 93, uh, which has got to be a feather in the cap for the undertaker at that time. Uh, but there is a little bit of a talent swap that happens in early 93, uh, February, I believe. And it's with the WWF and USWA in Memphis. Um, how does that come about from your best of your recollection? Jerry Jarrett was up at uh, WWF as a consultant, and he was working with us. And Jerry obviously was the promoter for the USWA there in Memphis and Nashville and that area. So we were using Jerry Lawler. We brought Jerry Lawler in to be a color commentator. Lawler being the brains in the operation, um, had natural friction with Vince. And they had just a natural immediate connection, and they immediately had friction and were very good on air. But Lawler, always the businessman, wasn't afraid to ask and threw out, you know, hey, you know, first it started with Vince and some different guys, but Memphis was someplace that we – we're going to utilize is a training ground to be able to send young talent there to learn how to work. And then it became when they needed some help on some of their shows where we would send talent down to help them draw a house. 
But Lawler just asked. And when you ask the boss and you're sitting in a in a in a uh, audio booth, sure, pal, Bruce, get some talent down to Memphis. That's <laughs> you know, just one of those things. It's one of those deals where um, I just like when you say that. So I'm sure we'll cover that USWA talent exchange a great deal in the future, but we'll cover it some more on this episode too. But first, hypothetically speaking, who would have ever guessed that when we first mentioned him on the steroid trial, when I said, hey, I don't know when we'll ever talk about him again, that Jerry Jarrett would be this over with the show and this popular on our show. This is the most Jerry Jarrett's ever been over in his life, by God. Well, as you know... Uh, several episodes back i challenged everybody to go to google and i want you to do it right now bruce and i want you to type in your google machine jerry jarrett it's going to give you a pop-up or a drop down rather and it's going to give you three suggestions or at least it does on my end what's number one on your end bruce people go to google.com and then when the little box comes up there they know how you type google in works. jerry jarrett you get Jerry Jarrett, you know. And what's second? And then you get Jerry Jarrett chicken salad recipe. Uh, let's get back to February 1993 on the Superstars tapings. We start to see Gonzalez saying he is going to bury the Undertaker tonight. And um, then on the house shows, we see the strongest advances in quite a while, per the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. American crowds were slightly below average in most cities and advances for this coming weekend on the West Coast are weak as well. However, where do we get is the Undertaker-Yokozuna matches that start on the 19th have the strongest advances of any house show feud in about 10 months. Uh, we briefly talked about this on our 1994 Royal Rumble episode, uh, but I'm curious... When did you guys know that uh, he was going to be a big draw as a headliner? Probably right about then, but it still hadn't been tested yet. So to throw him out there and to get that kind of a response was absolutely tremendous because we had developed that attraction that we were looking for. So it was it was able to you know, have somebody else up there that you could put in the main event spot and draw. Let's talk about February 25th. It happens in Memphis, Tennessee. It's the WWF USWA card. It draws 3,500 folks, which is pretty good. Here's the card. Typhoon defeats Skinner. Virgil defeats Terry Taylor. Crush defeats Papa Shango. The Undertaker defeats Yokozuna by disqualification. The Steiner brothers defeat the Beverly brothers. Uh, Kamala defeats Kim Chi. And then in the main event, Jerry Lawler defeats Jeff Gaylord, who was substituting for, do you recall? No clue. The WWF Intercontinental Champion, Shawn Michaels. Do you remember why Shawn wouldn't have showed up to this? Absolutely no clue whatsoever. But that was more just a, that was a WWF card putting Lawler on it as. No shit. Am I right? They say it's yeah. joint, but it's Lawler. Yeah. Uh, I guess if they call it USWA, they can justify an announcer being in the main event. There you go. String of wrestler deaths. This is unfortunate, but it happens in February and March of 1993. Andre the Giant passed away on February 8th, 1993. 
Um, how much time do you think the undertaker would have been able to spend with Andre the giant? They would have passed each other, right? Just briefly. I mean, they were both at WrestleMania seven. Yeah, but it was very brief and Andre wasn't really fond of big guys and taker kind of knew that and paid his respects and just stayed out of the way, stayed out of the way. What do you think, um, uh, Andre would have to say about what the undertaker has been able to accomplish. Good for him. Was that the undertaker or hashtag Kamala's penis right there? Andre, I'm a giant. Kerry Von Erich passed away on February 18th and Dino Bravo on March 10th. So one of these by natural causes, the other two, not so much. Uh, in March, we start to see a series of house shows here, all of them with Yokozuna, uh, and drawing to different, I mean, way, way different crowds. Here's an example. They're in Ontario and draw 2,200 folks. They're in South Carolina and draw 7,800. In Quebec, 4,800. In Miami, 1,850. 1,850. St. Louis, 3,600. Uh, Toledo and Columbus, both 1,900. Denver, only 3,600. Do you want to talk about the stronghold? How about Pittsburgh, 9,000. Philadelphia, 8,700. Lots of disparate ticket sales there. Let's talk about USWA a little bit more here. Uh, March 16th, they draw 4,500 folks to Louisville. uh, And here, The Undertaker defeats Giant Gonzalez via countout. Meltzer wrote... The USWA drew what was reported to me as its biggest crowd in several years on March 16th in Louisville of a near sellout to see Undertaker versus Giant Gonzalez. So even though we all kind of poke fun now at Giant Gonzalez, people were intrigued to see him with the Undertaker. So you guys were on to something at WrestleMania. Well, they, they yeah, it, it was it was the attraction. It's like the the three-headed man at the circus. It was the giant in the phenom, the undertaker. I think people wanted to see what was going to happen, but it was strictly an attraction driven, (laughs) driven deal, man. It wasn't, Hey, you're going to see a great match. It was kind of like, you're going to see these two guys in the ring. I found this interesting, uh, March 19th. So just a couple of weeks prior to WrestleMania nine undertaker worked double duty, uh, in New York. And he had a match with Yokozuna that finished by disqualification after about four minutes. Uh, there's a lot of interference here from giant and Harvey. Uh, and then in the main event, I suppose undertaker defeats giant Gonzalez by DQ after about eight minutes when the giant uses the urn as a weapon. And afterwards undertakers put onto a stretcher before being attacked again by the giant, but eventually sits up and the giant clears from the ring. Meltzer wrote of this, that Pat Patterson was at the show and was watching intently the Undertaker-Gonzalez match. Do you think he was assigned by Vince to go to this to say, God damn, pal, figure out how to make chicken salad? No, it was just probably, we were probably just in the area and just wanted to make those shows and see them. And from, from time to time, Pat and I would go out on house shows. A lot of times we would go unannounced and just show up to watch the house shows to get a feel of what people are buying and what they aren't buying. When you watch a show from backstage and people know that you're there, you, you may get one show versus if you just show up and, 
and see the show as an audience member. But there were also shows that we just went out because we wanted to see certain matches and we wanted to see certain things live. So, of course, we've covered WrestleMania 9 in great detail. It's available in the archives now. Uh, Very quickly, it was April 4th, Caesars Palace. It was outdoors. Undertaker gets the win by DQ. It's notable uh, it was his only win by disqualification. They used chloroform in the finish. Um, Not the best match ever. Meltzer gave it a star and a quarter. Meltzer makes note in this WrestleMania recap um, that Gonzalez can and will be a short-term draw if he's handled correctly, just based on his size. And he says, quote, the problem is that he can't work. The Undertaker matches thus far have been terrible, although give the WWF credit for getting the two in the ring for test runs before WrestleMania, because maybe they'll at least be able to practice their way into a watchable match. If they had gone out there live on pay-per-view for the first time ever, it could have been really ugly. Uh, and he also wrote, I found this interesting, that uh, Gonzalez is a diabetic and has terrible knees. How much of a topic of conversation was that in the back amongst the office of the boys? Well, unfortunately, a lot, because there was an issue with him bleeding. He couldn't bleed either, that there was some kind of issue with that. And, yeah, you had to, he had... Uh, also low blood sugar too some kind of weird deal he had to eat it was he had a lot of medical issues for a giant so we were aware of all of them his knees that's what cut his basketball career short so add on all of that on top of being a giant having the uh the giant disease you know the name of that and his lifespan was one that they didn't expect him to live very long well, it wound up winning the uh, worst feud of the year in the Observer for 1993, and it won um, as a runner-up for the worst match, uh, Undertaker versus Giant Gonzalez. But WWF still goes with it coming out of WrestleMania 9, and he starts to work the house show loops in a big way. Or at least that was the plan, because he wound up being replaced by Yokozuna. Uh, he missed a lot of dates on the European tour. You guys were all over here, England, Scotland, Belgium, Italy, uh, and he's replaced by Yokozuna. Do you remember what happened here, why he had to be replaced? I just think it was health issues just taking their toll on him, and he couldn't take travel for long periods of time. Being in WCW, they didn't travel him nearly the schedule that they had in the WWF, and he just didn't hold up well on the road. From the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, April 26th edition, Dave writes, Gonzalez did the first clean jobs of his career for The Undertaker on the European tours this past week. Uh, when do you guys make the decision, hey, we know he's a giant, we know he's never lost, oh well, we got to move on, we're going to beat him. When the bell rang. <laughs> oh God, thank you for that. Okay, let's get going. We're in May again. This time we're doing house shows against Gonzalez. Uh, Most of these are won by disqualification. Uh, They do a superstars taping where the Undertaker defeats Bam Bam Bigelow with a choke slam after Tatanka prevented Bigelow from leaving ringside. Uh, But most of the time, he's still working with Gonzalez. This is from the Observer in June. Quote, Vince McMahon resigned as president of Titan Sports approximately two weeks ago in a major news item that has been largely kept hush-hush. 
McMahon, who was both president and CEO of the largest wrestling company in the U.S., apparently had company control transferred to wife Linda McMahon a few weeks ago, either on or before May 14th. McVince remains CEO of Titan Sports and will remain as a television personality. Titan has not publicly released this information in press release fashion, although several sources within the organization have admitted that it was true and that the public relations department has confirmed the story. Aside from the obvious speculation regarding this somehow being tied to the ongoing federal investigation, no other details or significance is known. However, from the outside, there doesn't seem to be any significant change in operation of the company, and many employees of the company weren't even aware of the switch in the company presidency as of press time. I only bring this up because I don't know when we'll talk about it again. What's the rationale here behind the scenes? That Vince took the title of CEO and gave Linda the title of president. Uh, Prior to that, Vince was the president and Linda was vice president. I just said that, but why? Is it strategy? Because we had not, we had not previously had a CEO and, Oh, oh God, it was was during Lisa Wolf times, which we will bring up her again at some point. Lisa Wolf was the HR person at the time. And and Lisa had a background with the NFL for a short period of time. And and she was horrible. Uh, But she, she was all about perception and she was all about, she was very big on titles and she felt that Vince needed to be a CEO. Vince, you need a CEO. And you need to be more than a president. You need to be the CEO. So all they did was there was no change in anything other than semantics. Vince became the CEO. Linda became the president. Before before that time, we had never had a CEO. That's all it was, was semantics. So you don't think there was any sort of strategy here of, hey, we're going to get sued, or, hey, I'm going to jail. None of that. This is just Lisa Wolf wanted him to have a different title. Yeah, I mean, how would that affect anything anyway? He was still CEO. He was still the top officer of the company. Linda was still second in command. So prior to that, he had been president. She had been vice president. Now he was CEO. She was president. It was simply semantics and changes of titles, new titles, same jobs. On the June and then, 8th. And, and then, then when Vince became chairman, that when Vince wanted someone else to be CEO, he became chairman. So it was just, he's still the boss. He was still in charge of everything and still there and still the man. In June, the Observer reports that the WWF negotiated a deal with a concert promotions company in Japan to run shows in Japan on its own. Uh, prior to this, most shows had been co-promoted, or at least that's the way I understood it. Uh, but at this point, uh, this concert promotions company has an affiliation with a local promoter who's doing work with the WWF in London. Uh, so now they're starting to do market research on the Japanese wrestling market, and it's believed that Hogan won't work for the WWF in Japan because it would mess with his deal with New Japan. So Undertaker and Bam Bam Bigelow would then become the biggest names because at that point, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, and Lex Luger didn't really mean a lot in Japan. Uh, and they also believed it would be difficult to sell tickets without a Japanese babyface on top, so they need a mean, nasty heel on top. 
Do you remember these conversations about running shows on your own and that the undertaker would probably need to be the guy to headline? There was a lot of speculation as to who would be the guy to headline because it was, you know, it's interesting. The, the Japanese will tell you that you can't run Japan without a Japanese baby face. The experts, media experts will tell you that you can't run Japan without a Japanese baby face. However, the biggest, uh, events that WWE ran in Japan were the ones that they did on their own without the traditional Japanese babyface and working with a Japanese office. They presented that perception to people so that you would have to use one of the offices in Japan to promote your shows and so that they would make money off of it. But the same argument was made when we started going to Germany and when we started going to to the UK. You got to use local talent. You have to use a top guy from here if you want to draw the international audience, they want that American import and that's what they want. They, they have the Japanese there all the time. And that's what they were telling us that essentially we needed to present our product, the same product that we present in the United States, the same product that is exported to them. When we would go there before, we would traditionally do that. We would give them a Japanese baby face and work with a Japanese company, and it would do okay. But there, yeah, it, it was a bunch of it was a bunch of shit. Uh, <laughs> different people with different opinions on on what works and what doesn't work. But yeah, we had a lot of different people giving their opinions on how to promote internationally. So the first appearance of uh, The Undertaker in Memphis on a USWA show and a strictly USWA show is on June 7th. It draws 1,750 folks uh, for about a $10,000 gate, which is roughly double the weekly average. And Undertaker goes to a double DQ challenging Southern champion Brian Christopher in the main event. I only kept this in my notes because, motherfucker, I know you've got a Brian Christopher story. Yeah, another one I can't tell. Um, Brian Christopher and Undertaker. God, can you imagine that? Think about that. And Brian Christopher was a top guy in Memphis at the time. And he's all of about five foot three and Undertaker being six seven. It was when Vince finally met Brian Christopher, looked at all of us like going, wait a minute. We put him in the ring on top. With the Undertaker, God damn, pal! Yeah, he did some crazy things to uh, to appease people back then. But no, 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 that's not what I want to hear. Brian Christopher was a crazy motherfucker, and don't you sit here and deny it. Let's hear it. Good I'm not going to deny it. He's a fucking lunatic, and there and there's there's a reason why Brian Christopher, you know, never never made it beyond memphis tennessee and and could sustain it in a big company because he, he just has a lot of bad habits and um i'm not, he's not the most dependable son of a bitch in the world i'm not wanting to shit on the guy just tell us a funny story uh you mean like the time that he got caught with the with the cd of, of cocaine in in vancouver or someplace 
and his excuse was, well, I thought we had done it all or something like that. I don't know. It was some, it was really some crazy, stupid excuse like that. Ah, it couldn't have been, couldn't have been. Why, why not, why couldn't, it, why couldn't it have been? Because we, we, we had already done it all. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? But, um, what is a CD I tell of you cocaine? What, I guess I'm, uh, I'm no, a C, it was in a CD disc. Oh, wow. And they found drugs in a CD disc. And he said, no, it couldn't have been because it was somewhere else or something like that. And it was, it was, it was one of those crazy, stupid excuses like, well, of course, no, there wasn't any full containers of alcohol. We drank them all. It was like when Kid Rock landed in Vancouver and, and the, they brought all the dogs on and they said, where are the drugs? They said, we just took them all. There is no more pot. We smoked it all. So that was kind of Brian Brian's excuse when he got popped uh, on the on the border, is to no, it can't be true. We did it all. <laughs> but I tell you what, back back in that time, Brian Christopher was being heralded as one of the the top independent talent out there that that had not been, you know, picked up by either company, and he was a hell of a talent. Absolutely, back in the day. yeah. I was always entertained by him as a fan. I, I was. I was not anti him at all. I just know that he had a reputation for, well, I mean, he likes to party. So I don't have a problem with that. I just wanted to hear a fun story. You gave us one. Let's get on with it. Uh, let's talk about the time that Dave Meltzer went to a house show and he wrote about it in the observer. They were at the Oakland Coliseum on June 25th, uh, about 4,000 folks were there, $44,000 house. Kids tickets were discounted $3 a ticket. Um, he says, crowd was a lot more lively than any show in about a year, and it was much better than a usual house show, although two of the matches were worse than horrible. Undertaker beat Johnny Gonzalez by DQ in 5 minutes and 36 seconds, and this is the worst match I've seen in many years. Undertaker was knocked out by the worst cheer shot in history. None of this was Undertaker's fault either. I don't think it was possible for Gonzalez to actually get worse. Negative four stars. Uh, when did you guys realize, eh, time to future endeavor, Mr. Gonzalez? <laughs> well, Vince hates to give up and Vince likes a challenge. So the worst thing you can do if you feel that something isn't working and, that somebody may not have it and Vince feels otherwise is to let him know that because by God, come hell or high water, he's going to prove you wrong. And it doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter how much money it costs. It doesn't matter at whose expense it, it is expended upon. He's going to prove you wrong. And I feel that maybe some of us, you know, counted the giant out early on and he was determined to make it work until finally just couldn't make it work anymore. It just was. And I, I want to say it was probably the undertaker coming to him and saying, I've done all I can do. I can't stew no more. So in the August 9th edition of the observer, Dave writes major roster cuts will be made over the next few weeks. The WWF will be cutting back to one house show per night with the final night of double shots being August 15th. 
Among the names who will either be cut, leaving, or receiving few dates and staying under contract but mostly working indies are Damian Demento, Terry Taylor, Bob Backlund, Tito Santana, Mr. Fuji, Kamala, Giant Gonzalez, Virgil, Blake Beverly, Doink the Clown 2, which is Steve Kern, Papa Shango, Ted DiBiase, and Jim Duggan. Uh, that's a lot of famous names right there. Um, what was your relationship like with Terry Taylor at this point? Not really. I didn't really have one other than, uh, you know, we worked together. That was about it. What time is it? Talk a little do time. Uh, so for most of the house shows after SummerSlam, uh, they start advertising that it's going to be Undertaker Yokozuna. And the plan for SummerSlam is a rest in peace match with Giant Gonzalez, uh, which is kind of fun because it's the Undertaker's gimmick and kind of fun because the end is near for Giant Gonzalez. Uh, we've kind of, you know, beat him up a little bit here. Uh, but compare him to the Ultimate Warrior because we started this show off by you really crapping all over the Ultimate Warrior. And it feels like we've done that a lot now for the Giant Gonzalez. If you had to pick who was a better worker, the Ultimate Warrior or Giant Gonzalez? Oh, my God. I'm actually going to say Warrior may be a better worker than somebody. I'd have to give the nod to the Warrior because he drew a lot more money and at least looked better in the ring. So Ultimate Warrior would get the nod. Leading up to SummerSlam 93, Undertaker missed a bunch of the shows, except for Anaheim, where he was limited in what he could do. Are you ready for this? Because of an injury from playing softball. Not sure if it was a bad leg injury or broken ribs, as we've heard both. In San Francisco and Stockton, Undertaker was at the building and did a walk-in during the Randy Savage, Giant Gonzalez horrendous matches, but didn't make any contact. Now, I had to do a double take here, because usually in wrestling, when you hear about a guy getting jacked up during softball, it's about Sid. But here, it's Undertaker. What happened? I think he got hit with a ball. I don't really remember, but I, I, I think the booking committee hit him with a ball. Okay. I so, don't, I don't remember folks. I, I really and truly don't. SummerSlam Sorry. Uh, was voted the uh, worst match. Of course was undertaker Gonzalez. Um, and they show the match in eight minutes and four seconds. Meltzer writes, I'm not sure what a rest in peace match even is after seeing this. Other than a moniker for a match that was sure to die the minute the bell rang. Undertaker was limited by an injury. Gonzalez is limited because he's the worst wrestler ever and getting worse by the day. The only thing positive is Gonzalez gave Undertaker better chair shots than he did at the house shows. After five minutes, Paul Bear showed up. Remember, he'd been suspended since the last angle ran injuring him with a black wreath and clotheslined Harvey Whippleman and got the urn. Bear picked up the urn to give the Undertaker his magical powers back. I can't believe I'm writing this. And after five clotheslines, followed by a clothesline off the top rope, after the match, Gonzalez gave Whippleman a choke slam, so he's turning face. Most feel the reason is Gonzalez had committed to Hogan. If Hogan were to get something started as Hogan's top heel foe, boy, would those matches be something to look forward to. And this muddies the water for it with Gonzalez turning on a pay-per-view. Negative one star. What do you remember about this SummerSlam 1993 match? Is this better or worse than WrestleMania 9? 
How long was the match again? Eight minutes. And four seconds? Yep. It's about eight minute and one second too long. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a rest in peace match. The The symbolism behind it, <laughs> whoever lost would rest in peace and go bye-bye. It wasn't good. It was, unfortunately, a case where every time that, bless his little heart, Giant Gonzalez worked, it just got worse and worse. So Vince thought maybe if we we do something with him as a baby face, he can smile and children will want to get their pictures taken next to the eight-foot giant and we can have a nice picture-taking attraction or something in the lobby. Lex Luger returned on the September 27th television tapings in New Haven, and uh, he got the third biggest reaction behind Undertaker and Razor Ramon. So uh, Luger, despite being pushed as the tippy-top guy, was still not getting the reactions people wanted. Okay. So they start setting records, which is a surprise to me, uh, given the time. But we know that this Undertaker... Uh, Yokozuna match has been proven to be successful. Well, they keep doing it. And in San Jose, they break a record for the all-time gate that was set just five weeks earlier by AAA. And they do this in the brand-new 20,000-seat San Jose arena. And the crowds continue to increase, and people are digging it. On top is Yokozuna and Undertaker. And they go eight minutes and 53 seconds. Meltzer gives it two-and-a-half stars. So while it's not a five-star match, it is putting butts in seats, pal. Uh, the B-Shows, even with Undertaker and Yokozuna on top uh, later in the month, are only doing 800 to 1,500. So it goes back to what we talked about a minute ago. There's pockets of the country where business is hotter than hell. And then other pockets, they just can't give damn tickets away. SummerSlam, though, uh, or Survivor Series, rather, in the Boston Gardens, uh, did draw a legit sellout of 15,509 folks. Uh, and the gate is around $180,000. Supposedly, the show sells out in about an hour when tickets were first put on sale. Do you remember Survivor Series 93 being a huge financial success for you guys? It was good, and it was... I do remember the sellout because it was the first one like that in a long time, so it felt good. But as you just pointed out, there were pockets of the country and particularly in the Northeast, where we were still red hot and we were drawing better than what traditionally was not the stronghold. In the Midwest, we, man, we just were dying. And and, and, and Florida, I saw, died, but California yeah. was doing well. The Northeast was doing well. One of the things I wanted to ask you about this Survivor Series, and I hadn't seen this a lot in my research since we've been doing this show Uh, But Meltzer wrote, the show sold out in about an hour when tickets were first put on sale. Here it is. Although the building had actually been more than half sold out before the box office even opened by pre-sale mail orders. Tell everybody about this concept because that doesn't exist anymore. But a pre-sale mail order, what would that have looked like back in 1993? We would have gone to the pocket of fans that had obviously purchased tickets before in that area and let them know especially in the um, not just the tri-state area because massachusetts is over uh further east but we would go to people in that area and that had purchased tickets before through Ticketmaster, and we would send out blasts to them in the mail 
okay, <laughs> through snail mail with the mailman delivering things to their home, offering them tickets for the live event. We also had addresses uh, from folks from the cable companies who had purchased pay-per-views before in the area and give them the first opportunity to buy tickets and be ahead of the uh, public on sale date. I'm just fascinated by that because, you know, now we have pre-sale codes and stuff like that and everything's online, but through the mail, man, that's old school. Um, I'm curious, and no one cares about this but me, but when you guys would pre-sale tickets like that, did they have to fill out the credit card information and mail it back, or were they taking checks at the box office? No, they were taking checks at the box office. Amazing. I'm, I'm sure they did credit cards and stuff too, but probably most of it was checks and things of that nature back in those days. Nowadays, all I have to do is put what's a put a tweet, you know, put something on the tweet. And yeah, there you go. It's off tweet. Uh, Sur- tweet. Survivor Series is Lex Luger and the Steiners with uh, Undertaker uh, defeating Ludwig Borga, Yokozuna, Jacques Rougeau, and Crush. Twenty-seven minutes and fifty-nine seconds. Borga pins Rick in uh, five minutes to win the first fall. The finish was supposed to be Borga rolling through a crossbody off the top rope. Uh, what it was was so messed up that it couldn't even be described, according to Dave Meltzer. Savage comes out, and Crush jumps on him after, uh, and then he gets counted out for a second fall after six and a half minutes. Luger pins Jacques with a forearm in two minutes, and during this fall, Vince McMahon made the comment that Borga may be the wrestler of the 90s. Meltzer writes, God help us for the next seven years. Yokozuna pins Scott in two minutes and 53 seconds with a leg drop. Uh, And he writes, the most heated part of the match came when the Undertaker finally tagged in three minutes into the fifth fall. Yokozuna kept doing moves, and Undertaker would sit up. Undertaker even sat up after a bonsai. Both men were then counted out at six minutes and 29 seconds. This left uh, Luger and Borga, and then Luger pinned Borga after a forearm in four minutes and 36 seconds. Not bad, but hardly a memorable pay-per-view main event. It is kind of weird to think about this selling out so quickly, and that shit is the main event. What do you remember about that match? Well, the most heat in that match was not Undertaker tagging in. The most heat was the week uh, before when Vince asked Undertaker to put the American flag inside of his uh, (laughs) overcoat. (laughs) I got to hear that story. You know, you had the All-Americans and Lex Luger's team and Undertaker being on it. You had the Steiners over there, and then you had Undertaker and Vince's. Now, damn, pal, when you get out there and Luger introduces you as one of the All-Americans and you just open up the coat, and there's the red, white, and blue. And Taker's looking at him like, are you fucking ribbing me? Not a rib, pal. No, <laughs> but but Taker really did look at him like, "Are you fucking ribbing me? You want to you want to dress me up in red, white, and blue now? Just the lining of your coat. It'll be great." So they had a coat made for him. They took his coat and they lined it with the stars and stripes. It was like an old colonial flag. And Taker came out, and he did it for the interview, and he did it for the match. And the, the next uh, the next day or whatever the next tapings were, Vince comes to him and says, hey, you know, we want to do something with the, uh, with the jacket. And Taker says, well, yeah, about that. I said, what do you mean? 
this is well, my dog kind of ate the lining of your of, of the jacket. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, my dog just yeah, my dog got a hold of the jacket. He only, craziest thing too. He only ate the lining, and it never made the light of day after that. So, my goodness. that was the most heat. That was the most heat. But it was. Yeah, at the time, man, Luger, Luger was All-American. Borga, we had high hopes for Ludwig Borga. He was the real deal. He was a friggin' Nazi, too, which we didn't know <laughs> until kind of midway into his uh, reign there. He had a swastika tattoo and a, a SS tattoo that he would cover up. And one day, I forget where the hell we were, I'm sitting there looking and go, is that it? Is that it? An SS tattoo? And sure enough, it was. So Vince politely asked him to cover all that shit and never let it see the light of day. Well, I mean, that's fair request. Yeah. Good God. Can you imagine? I mean, and, and, you know, obviously it was enough that he hit it all the time. But this one time he was in shorts and I saw it on his leg. I was like, what the hell? But yeah, he was a shooting Nazi. He's a shoot Nazi. That's not something I expected for us to talk about today. Never know when we're going to talk about him again. No, you don't. The annual Thanksgiving weekend show of Madison Square Garden drew a huge house. 12,700 folks, 220,000 at the gate. You want to guess what was in the main event? Yoko Taker? In a casket match, baby. I mean, let's play the hits. Uh, on December 20th edition of the Wrestling Observer, Dave writes that Titans Television leading up to the Royal Rumble has come to this. The three undercard matches will be Undertaker versus Yokozuna in a casket match, and it's being billed as Undertaker's only title shot, uh, which I thought was interesting. And we've covered the rest of kind of that. Uh, episode. If you'd like to hear it, it's the Royal Rumble 1994. It is available in the archives. Um, there's lots of the sky is falling stuff in the end of the 1993 edition of the observers, both on the WCW side and the WWF side. How bad do you think business really was at that time? Was it a topic of conversation? Because you guys are just a few years removed from being white hot and now here, uh, not so much. It was a tough few years. It was, th- there were moments where we just didn't know. But at the same time, having weathered that storm through anybody that's been in the business for a while, you would go through these cycles. And, and Vince always hated that too. God damn, I don't want to hear about cycles. But the business goes through cycles of popularity, and it goes through cycles of being red hot, and then it cools off a little bit. Well, we hadn't just cooled off. I mean, we were cold, and we were fighting for everything that we had, and it it was a battle every single day. Just not really sure if if we were going to be there next year. And Vince was taking money out of uh, out of his personal, you know personal accounts and floating, floating the company. 
you know, putting taking six million dollars in and, and putting six million dollars into the company of his own money to keep it keep it going. So it, it was there were some tough times. There there were moments where we didn't know, but at the same time, if you've been in the business any length of time, you knew it was going to come back around. Let me ask this: um, when he's doing these cash infusions as an owner, is there ever any consideration of let's take on a partner? an investor there probably was but i don't think that his pride ever would have let him share allowed him to truly take on an equal partner yeah so and he had the money so he was he was going to fund it himself he was rolling the dice and he was going to continue he was going to put it this way vince was going to lose everything he had before he was going to go out and ask for anybody else's there you go well, it starts to look kind of bleak uh, when the buy rate comes in for Survivor Series, which I thought was interesting. It's worth mentioning that the ratings for uh, the Survivor Series special, like leading into it, was up like 20%. So that's a good indicator. So you start to think, okay, hey, we're turning things around. Then the buy rate comes in, and it falls 41%. So... Survivor Series 92 to 93 falls off a cliff, 41%. Um, people have to be hitting the panic button at that point. Am I wrong? Not really, believe it or not. It was it was a building process. There was, at that point, there were questions, okay, because they were thinking of Luger. That was that was the plan going up into SummerSlam, man. Go with Luger. Then we, we didn't go with Luger. So now it's where do we go from here? We got a, we got a heel champion, a monster champion. He's doing good business, but he was doing good business with Undertaker. But Vince wasn't ready to make that move with Undertaker either. So he was still looking for that traditional babyface, the the guy everybody can get around and, and rally behind. So the jury was still out, I guess is the best way to put it, and business was tough. So let's do the end of the year Observer Awards. Best gimmick, number one, Undertaker. Worst feud of the year, number one, Undertaker Gonzalez. Worst match of the year, number two, is Undertaker Gonzalez at SummerSlam. The honorable mention is Undertaker Gonzalez at WrestleMania. Most overrated, Undertaker got an honorable mention. He's number fourth on the most charismatic list. He is an honorable mention for both best babyface and most unimproved. Do you remember anybody besides Mauro Ronaldo talking about wrestling observer ratings in the locker room? No. Let's talk about the Underfaker. Uh, now, this kind of comes about, correct me if I have this right, through essentially a partnership with the USWA. And one of the knocks against the WWF for so long was that they refused to recognize other promotions and that they even existed. And uh, then wrestlers would get essentially a complete reset once they made it to New York in the big time. And their history was kind of just swept under the rug. The partnership with the USWA started to put a crack in the foundation as far as this point of view from fans, especially in Memphis. So while the USWA wasn't mentioned on WWF television, their wrestlers played a major role in Memphis for the USWA. 
And through this, of course, we know benefiting Jerry Lawler is the primary thing for any USWA or Memphis angle. And he debuted, as we've mentioned, on December of 1992 as an announcer for the WWF. And the first crossover uh, that we mentioned earlier was at the Louisville Gardens in uh, 1992. And we see uh, more of this in 94. But one of the first things that caught my eye in doing my research here, and this is rumor and innuendo, was that when the Pyramid first opened in Memphis, you guys were running a show there. It was August of 92. And there's a fellow in the second row throwing out challenges to the wrestlers, including Bret Hart. And that challenger was USWA star Jeff Jarrett. Do you remember hearing about this? Well, yeah, we put him there. Okay, that's what I wanted to hear. So even back in that segment of 92, that was always the plan. But when was the plan going to be for Jarrett in 92 to be involved on the WWF side? Was it always just to build for Memphis, or was there ever a vision? No, the stuff we did in Memphis was strictly for Memphis. And when we went there, that was for WWE, and we would help them out by rubbing their guys up against our guys at our shows. That was it. And the goal was, let's use them as like a training ground of sorts, so when you needed to send somebody down there for some polish, you could? If we... Well, actually, we had sent a couple guys down there to train. Uh, Colin Scotts was one of them who was a... Uh, Australian rugby player. He may have been, well, there may have been someone else, but he was the first one that we sent down there to train in Memphis. And we just looked at it. Hey, you guys say you can train wrestlers. Okay, here you go. Make him a star. But it didn't work out because they trained him the Memphis wrestling stuff. And that wasn't what Vince was looking for. But the, the stuff that we did in Memphis, that was strictly only in Memphis. And, and then in Louisville, those were just strictly market-specific things. I mentioned this because we've gotten lots of questions about it. Uh, it's the first time you see Mr. McMahon, the heel version, the heel persona of Vince McMahon, the television character. This is on YouTube if you'd like to see it. Uh, September of 1993, I believe, is when you start to see some of these heel promos on USWA television. Uh, it's worth going out of your way to see. Uh, and The Undertaker is a guy they leaned on to draw houses down there. So we'll kind of put a bow on USWA for a little bit. Uh, obviously, 93-94, man, it's a rough period for the WWF. And The Undertaker's bearing the brunt of that with some really bad matches. That terrible match with Yokozuna at the Rumble in 94. Those two horrible Gonzalez matches. I thought the match at the Royal Rumble was great. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, Either way, he survives it. And I can't find anything on it necessarily officially. But I want to freestyle for you about 1994 as we get started. I believe 94 is when we first started to see the formation of the Bone Street crew. His kind of group of guys that Taker hung out with and he traveled with, and they started to get the BSK tattoos. And this is around the same time that you start to see the seeds of the clique coming together. Do I have that right that that would have been 94 when the, the BSK are first being put together? I'd go back to whenever Papa came in and... And Taker and Papa were were traveling together, and then um, the Godwins and guys like that, Savio. Those are all the guys that hung around and hung out. 
And it seems but, like uh, Yokozuna was a big part of that, too. You didn't mention him. But yes. He, yeah. yeah, he was. Uh, was there ever any consideration to making that BSK click of friends an on-screen thing, or was it always something Vince dismissed? No, that was just something that, that was a backstage deal. That was just something amongst the, the guys. But but why never a consideration for making it online, uh, out in front on TV? Well, there was never a consideration to make the click anything on TV either until many, many, many years later. But it was just something that was backstage that he didn't feel was, you know, plus the participants, he didn't see how Undertaker and Savio Vega in front of the camera, how that was going to work or the different guys that were all part of it. You know, how do you explain that the, the hog farmers and Undertaker are part of a crew? Well, you turn them evil and tell, call it the Ministry of Darkness, and then they sacrifice people and put them on a cross. Well, no, that was Midian. <laughs> uh, January 24th in The Observer, it's reported that New Japan was negotiating to make The Undertaker a semi-regular character. Do you remember those conversations? And at that point, since business was kind of down, were you? do you remember Vince being open to kind of lightening the load from an overhead standpoint? No, and they, they might have been talking about it, but it never got serious enough with us to anything more than talking stages. You know, the, those guys, whenever you hear those rumors of the Japanese stuff, that's always indicative of somebody over in Japan wanting to get things out, and they usually go to the fake news uh, wrestling media people and put those things out. That's my new term now, fake news. Dave Silva, that's a shout out to you. Much love, buddy. He's our fake news uh, guy. Have you been eating? Why, why do the why do the guys why the guys named Dave all do fake news? Have you been eating pineapple? <laughs> uh, my homie, Dave Silva, Vato. Uh, you know. We had so much fun with Dave Silver. We're going to talk about that later on, man. So Titan Sports holds a press conference on January 27th in Tokyo with uh, Sato and J.J. Dillon officially announcing the Japanese dates that had already been reported. Uh, it was a four-city tour they were calling Japan Mania um, with each individual show being named a town like Osaka Mania, Yokohama Mania. Uh, there weren't any lineups announced or ticket prices or days the tickets went on sale uh, or the arenas, or anything of substance <laughs> other than, uh, hey, we're coming. And, Tokyo uh, Mania! Uh, Meltzer writes, Nippon Mania! Only The Undertaker has a significant following in Japan, but even that is limited to hardcore fans, and overall, he's not among the top ten most popular foreign workers, uh, according to a recently released shoot poll, which I don't even know what a shoot poll is. I'm reading from and the who Observer. who did the poll? You're probably... Wade Keller. Um, so let's run through the Royal Rumble 1994. Actually, we're not going to. It's available in the archives now, but you will hear about the worst match and what won the worst match, according to the Absolutely Wrestling Observer Newsletter. It was The Undertaker versus Yokozuna. I've always been curious here in kayfabe when 30 motherfuckers run out of the back as heels and double team and triple team and 10 man team and 20 man team. And just gangbang the shit out of the Undertaker here. Why did no baby faces come make the save? He's a dead man, motherfucker. He has no friends. Well, he died that night. You guys murdered him and sent him to heaven. 
Yes, that's real. It happened. It's on our Royal Rumble 1994 episode available uh, in the archives. Now, behind the scenes, of course, the deal is uh, he's been hurt and he wants to take some time off to uh, heal a little bit. And he's going to have a baby on the way. So he asked for some time off to spend with the baby. Uh, Vince had no problem granting that. Would that be fair to say? Sure. So he's taking some time off, and the next time we see anything about The Undertaker is in the May 30th edition of The Observer. Uh, In Smoky Mountain Wrestling, it's written, Brian Lee has changed his hair color and started growing a small beard to get ready for his evil Undertaker role. Brian Lee was backstage preparing for his Undertaker evil twin role. Based on television, it appears he'll be managed by Ted DiBiase. So we're tuning up for The Undertaker here. And he debuts at television tapings on May 24th in Canton, Ohio. And then the following day, he's in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, He does have Ted DiBiase as a heel manager, and he's wrestling as The Undertaker. Meltzer writes, Lee's been made up to look like The Undertaker with his hair dyed reddish and grown long and stringy and wearing makeup, even practicing copying Undertaker's walk. Based on reports we got from the shows, there were definitely some fans but they were in the minority who believed that Lee was the original undertaker. There were loud BS chants in at least one of the cities, which will have to be dubbed over before this airs. Supposedly most of the fans realize once the match starts, this isn't the original undertaker. Uh, and when he does interviews, it gives it away to all those that were there live. But even so, even with DiBiase, he received a lot more cheers than booze just because of the entrance music. However, we're told on interviews, they're going to dub Mark Calloway's voice onto the track so it creates confusion among the fans. So he will have Callaway's voice on the interviews. When the match is there, supposedly the angle will be something to the effect of the heel announcer will claim it's the real Undertaker, and the face announcer won't be sure. Lee's hair is in front of his face during the entire match, but at the finish, he lifts his hair up for a brief minute with the idea being, if you weren't sure, now you're sure. Naturally, this will lead to The Undertaker confronting him to an Undertaker versus Undertaker match, most likely at SummerSlam. We're told the long-term deal is for Lee to turn on DiBiase and the two Undertakers be together. So there's some rumor and innuendo for you from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, but what say you? God, I I don't even know where to start. Um, The funny thing is, is that because somebody wrote it down that it is forever believed as fact well first of all with undertaker being out for a while the discussion becomes how do we bring undertaker back what do we do who is the opponent who's the right guy for the undertaker to come back now the natural thing is to do something with yokozuna but weren't necessarily really ready for that just yet and the discussion was who do we have ready for the undertaker And somebody might have made a comment along the lines of, well, it would be nice if we had another Undertaker, you know, type character to to face the Undertaker. And Brian Lee and Undertaker were good friends. And I'd recently been around Brian and people had mistaken Brian for the Undertaker when we were out. Because they had both had the same hair, they had the same beard. And... I started laughing. I said, what if we had the Undertaker? What do you mean? So what if we make another Undertaker? 
And I got pictures. I had Brian send pictures in and, and all this stuff and call taker. So what do you think about this? The idea being that you announce that the undertaker is returning and the announcement is made by the guy who originally, you know, brought finance, the undertaker coming into the WWE, the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Right. And by God, I'm bringing him back. I, I, <laughs> you know, I've got the undertaker and he, you know, I've bought him. He's bought and paid for. So without the comparison of Mark Calloway standing next to Brian Lee, a lot of people thought that Brian Lee was the undertaker. So we had, we had a tattoo expert come in and we had uh, tattoos put on Brian Lee's arm, ex- the exact same tattoos as the undertaker. As a matter of fact, Jerry Lawler sat at the makeup station with Brian Lee and drew and put color in the tattoos because we didn't think that the, the tattoo artists that had put on the temporary tattoos, that they looked good enough. And Lawler sat there and said, I can fix that. And Lawler sat there with a pen and made the tattoos on wow. Brian Lee's arms. Wow. And it was, I mean, oh, you talk about a great, Jerry Lawler is a magnificent artist. But Lawler did a lot of that work. So the idea was you bring back The Undertaker, and Brian Lee never cut a fucking promo, Dave Meltzer. The voice dub was always The Undertaker in the live houses everywhere. Brian never opened his mouth and cut promos. That was always an Undertaker dub. And... You know, that's why I get so upset when when I hear those that name come out of your mouth, because he he gets it from somebody who was there who sends him a report. And all of a sudden it's fact. Um, But. We thought, well, shit, if people if, if we could hide it enough, we even talked about doing the matches in like a purple hue. So that you could disguise them even more. Wow. So that you never really knew, and that when when DiBiase came out, man, it was it was so disguised. You thought, shit, I'm looking at the Undertaker. There was there was even thought at times about doing having the Undertaker play the Underfaker. You know what I mean? So you're really confused now. You got Mark Calloway out there who With is DiBiase, playing though. the yeah yeah. So the the problem was was that in in between our times taker had gotten more tattoos the real taker so it's like shit we've already debuted this other guy he's got the one arm and people hadn't seen the other tattoos nobody thought to call undertaker and say don't get any more tattoos you know when taker got his first tattoo i told him dude you, you probably just ruined your career right there <laughs> Why would you do that? <clears throat> don't get any, whatever you do, don't get any more tattoos. That was my advice to him in Binghamton, New York. I'll never forget it until he listened to me. But <clears throat> the idea was a few weeks uh, for the underfaker to be out there. Hang on, let's circle back. Why did you think he would end his career if he got a tattoo? 
Well, because it was it was a tattoo of himself with the skull and crossbones and everything, and I thought, you know, now you can't do anything else if this Undertaker thing doesn't work out for you, kid. <laughs> you're 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 now branded with this fucking tattoo. What are you thinking, you big dumb red red headed son of a bitch? Yeah. Needless to say, he didn't take my advice. And I think, you know what? I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think it's worked out all right for him. It worked out okay. So he's I think it worked out okay. The plan was to spend a few weeks with Undertaker. The, the plan was to spend a few weeks with the Undertaker. And like I said, we even talked about switching him out and, and actually having uh, the real Undertaker be the Undertaker a few times to really fuck people up. We, we didn't do that. We just had Brian Lee out there the whole time. But the and, – and the idea was never to have them – fucking be a team and do all that other bullshit after turning baby face on Ted DiBiase. That's just somebody saying, but here's what Meltzer can say after we didn't do that. Well, they changed plans. Yeah. No, that was never the plan. But as we got into it, as as always, we, we had Brian Lee come to the uh, studio and get in the ring and, and work with Undertaker to get his mannerisms down pat as close as we could. And until, for those who know, they knew. For those who didn't, they just weren't sure. And without Undertaker there to compare, I don't think as many people as Dave Meltzer would like to believe were were not fooled, if I'm saying that right. Well, here's the I think deal. more people were fooled than not. A couple of years prior to this, you know, people were saying, oh, that's not the real Ultimate Warrior. He's dead. This Correct. is the second one. So, you know, right. it is what it is. So, it, it is what it is in reverse. But as we, we got into it and we did the whole we did the whole build up to find The Undertaker, we brought Paul Bearer back. That was the first time that we wanted to say, hey, that's not the real Undertaker. Right. And then the search was on to find the real Undertaker. And this was probably some of the, the this was my absolute greatest experience ever with, with a celebrity from outside of the wrestling world to come into our world. And that was working with Leslie Nielsen. Yeah. To I was, find I, the Undertaker. I was going to get there, but let's just talk. Go about for it. it. Go ahead. No, you no, you go with where you're going, and we'll get to it when you're ready. Um, I want to talk about the decision for it to be Brian Lee. Uh, there's lots of rumor and innuendo that he is somehow loosely related to The Undertaker. Just set that record straight. No, I don't think so at all. Okay. Um, what was your experience like working with Brian Lee? Obviously, Brian Lee had been a big deal for Jim Cornette and Smoky Mountain, uh, he did re- a really good job for Paul Heyman and ECW, but here he's getting his big break. Uh, but we don't hear a lot about the bulldozer or primetime Brian Lee. Do you have any good Brian Lee stories you can share with us here? I've got a really good one, but I won't share it. I can't share it. Um, my brother would kill me. Oh, just change some names. Uh, change some names. No, it's bad. No, it's bad. But Brian, Brian was, you know, he, he was um, a big strapping bastard, and he used to like to take. No, I can't do it. Oh, man. Maybe I'll talk you into it at a live show one day. Um, Maybe. <laughs> let's talk about uh, the, the character and how he got it down. In my head, 
like I've heard the story, allegedly, you guys sent some videotape to Kane and Rick Bogner when they were going to portray the fake Razor and the fake Diesel. Do you just ask Brian Lee to study a bunch of tape you send him, and then he just starts to practice at his house? No, and we didn't send... I mean, obviously, yes, we sent tapes to him, but we, we brought Rick Bogner and Glenn Jacobs in to the studio and had them go over it and over it and over it with Savio Vega and uh, forget who the hell else we had come in there and just help them get that down. But with Brian Lee, we did the same thing, and we brought Brian up to the studio in Stanford with Undertaker so- and had in the ring painstakingly going over the mannerisms of the undertaker is uh vince involved in that part or not so much he was involved with a little bit of it but mainly that was uh undertaker and i that did most of that uh do you guys set him up with a seamstress or does he just try to alter some of taker's old gear or how does that work most of that was taker's old gear that was modified they were about the same size brian was probably about three inches shorter and he had to put some gimmicks in his boots. He already had gimmicks in his boots. Um, before we get on to talking about some business, let's talk about this from the Observer in that same issue. Jerry Jarrett has moved back from Stamford, Connecticut to Hendersonville, Tennessee. While he hasn't officially severed ties with the WWF, he is no longer part of the creative team. There are reports Jerry Jarrett is going to start a company that would lease jobbers to the major companies so the jobbers would work for him and would save the company some liabilities when it comes to the legal hornet's nest that will be wide open if the Chuck Austin decision isn't reversed. Do you remember uh, Jerry's departure here and the way the the word gets spread through the office? And had you heard about this jobber company concept? Well, the enhancement deal was something that we had discussed with several people. We ended up doing it with Killer Kowalski. But Jerry left because he was lonely and homesick and didn't contribute a whole lot. You know. Okay. Uh, Domino's Pizza buys a major corporate sponsorship for SummerSlam. It's going to be titled Domino's Delivers WWF SummerSlam. That's at least the advertising campaign, which will be included for all the advertising for the show. The company would heavily plug Domino's throughout television in both July and August. And they would constantly be talking about ordering pizza. Uh, They had SummerSlam on the box tops for all pizzas delivered in both July and August. And the advertised main event on the box top that was released even back in June was Undertaker versus Undertaker. Supposedly, allegedly, Domino's pays a quarter million dollars for this sponsorship opportunity. Does that sound about right to you? Uh, Yeah, probably so. Um, Brian Lee's television debut as Ted DiBiase's Undertaker took place on the WWF Superstar Syndicated show over the weekend in an interview segment where the original Undertaker, Mark Calloway, was dubbed over Lee's voice in studio to make television viewers believe it was the real McCoy. The makeup artists and those in television deserve a real praise for this one because aside from the small percentage of fans who know better, I doubt anyone else would even suspect this is a different person playing the part. Lee looked a lot more like The Undertaker than Jim Helwig looked like The Ultimate Warrior when he came back. While the interview on a Heartbreak Hotel segment done live was a giveaway with Lee's voice, the problem was cleared up by the time the show aired. 
It isn't known when Callaway will return to confront Lee playing the role. The King of the Ring pay-per-view seems too rushed, and the angle has to be pretty well uh, on television by early July, since the pizza boxes advertising the match will already be public by then. I would assume it's at the upcoming television tapings. Uh, at the next set of tapings, they do uh, an Evil Undertaker squash win with Bear coming out and trying to hug the evil. And at this point, they're still trying to get over who is the original. Uh, evil was about to hug Bear when DiBiase waved money at him and he stopped. King of the Ring 94 will get there at some point in the future. But what everybody was um, talking about mostly wasn't the pay-per-view and the Undertaker wasn't on it. Uh, but they were talking about the idea that the new slogan that Monsoon and Savage were pushing was the new generation WWF. And this is because Hulk Hogan had just signed with WCW. So let's briefly take a break here for a minute and talk about what impact that may have had on business at the time. Um, I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to Hulk Hogan 94 and this signing and, and all of this, but was the new generation WWF campaign already in the works or when the rumors start to float that Hogan's about to sign, do you guys start to counter program right away? No, that was something that was in the works going back even to WrestleMania where Vince just wanted new. What do we you know? What do they do whenever they're promoting something like a, a, a cereal? It's new, new, more vitamins, more minerals. We'll have the new generation. So that was the thought process behind it. They did a superstar taping on June 21st in Pennsylvania. And on the taping, Paul Barrett did an interview saying he's been in contact lately with The Undertaker. On the Raw episode that aired on June 27th, Gorilla Monsoon accidentally refers to Brian Lee as the new Undertaker. Uh, and apparently there were already uh, mentions on television of the pizza boxes. Even though the fans aren't supposed to know at this point that there are two of them. How does this happen? He was a new Undertaker. We had already started Paul Bearer coming out questioning that fact. But I'm saying at this so point. Monsoon being, Monsoon being Monsoon and being a babyface announcer wants to be the first one to tell you. It's a new Undertaker. I get you on that. I guess what I'm saying is they're delivering pizzas by this point with both Undertakers on there. Advertising SummerSlam, and you haven't even seen the real Undertaker return to confront the new Undertaker on TV. But if you ordered a fucking works pizza or a pizza, then you knew the main event. Yeah. No problem with that. But it was. No. He figured that that would be minuscule in comparison to the overall scope of things. Well, they wanted the quarter million dollars. Damn right. Okay, um, King's Court happens on the August 2nd edition of a Superstars taping. And here we have Ted DiBiase and Paul Bearer out. And DiBiase calls his Undertaker out, who then starts choking Paul Bearer. The lights go out, and then they flicker back on. Bear is outside the ring, and Mark Calloway is inside the ring for the first time since January. And he squashes Kwong. Quang. So I need to correct that. I know you like that. Uh, then Luger wrestles the evil undertaker who sits up after Luger's, Luger's moves. But finally, when Luger caught him in the torture rack, 
Bam Bam Bigelow had to interfere for the DQ. Uh, the good Undertaker does a walkout, and the two Undertakers do a stare down before the evil one backs out and leaves. Uh, and then, of course, the Undertaker, we all know and love, squashes Bigelow with a choke slam in just a minute and three seconds. Uh, the next week in The Observer, or two weeks later, we see Dave Wright. The headline angle, Undertaker versus Undertaker, has gotten so cold that the reports we've gotten are that it will be pronounced dead after the first and only match. From what we can understand and what seemingly be, seems to be confirmed by hints dropped by Vince McMahon on the live Sunday call-in show on the USA Network, which was a major disaster, by the way, are that this angle, talked about two months ago as being the res- re- resurrection of big box office for the company, is officially being dropped. McMahon said, almost matter-of-factly, that it would be the one and only meeting of the two Undertakers, and after that show, there would be only one. Whether it was the Leslie Nielsen skits, which I thought were entertaining, but I couldn't see it adding any sales, were falling flat, uh, or simply the idea of copying the most over and unique character of the 90s only dilutes the impact of the original, it's pretty well acknowledged that this idea was born dead. From what we've been told, the decision was made to remove Brian Lee from house show bookings for September, and he would return sometime very soon under a new name with a new look and as a new character. So let's talk about how that comes about, because as a kid, every kid I know was into this, Undertaker versus Undertaker. And Undertaker versus Yokozuna had been drawing awesome. Why did this not rub Vince the right way? I don't think he was totally convinced with Brian's work being that convincing in the ring doing Undertaker. So the thought of, and and just for the record, he says that there was never any plans to do more than one. So it's not like, oh my God, he killed it. It was always the plan to do a one-off. This was Undertaker's return. It was a way to bring him back and have one match, one attraction, one time. Well, but Goldberg was brought back for one match, one attraction, one time at Survivor Series, and that went well. So because it went well, they stretched it out. Why? But it would be different if we were bringing Mark Calloway back as The Undertaker. It was the whole idea was simply for Undertaker to reenter and to have a dragon to slay, slay him, and then be on to the next thing. It was simply an attraction, and that's all it ever was meant to be. It was never meant to be anything more beyond SummerSlam. What type of deal would you guys have negotiated with Brian Lee here? Would it have just been, we're going to bring you in for three months? Or Yeah, we- and if you work out well, then we might have something for you on down the road in a different gimmick, but we'd have to change your look and do something else with you down the road. Meanwhile, over at WCW, the, uh, August 24th clash of the champions is Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair. And it's the highest rated television special on TBS in all of 1994. Uh, it gets a, uh, 4.5 rating for the first hour, a 7.7 rating for the second hour. And it's the highest rated pro wrestling show on cable since, um, the 1990, Mountain Madness Clash of the Champions, which drew a 5.0. And probably the second most widely viewed pro wrestling match ever uh, behind Ric Flair and Lex Luger and Sting and Black Scorpion, also in 90. So WCW's business takes a real shot in the arm with this Hogan signing. 
Meanwhile, SummerSlam is on August 29th, and it's the first ever event at the United Center in Chicago, which Bruce just said was too fucking expensive for the WWF on our WrestleMania 13 episode, if you remember. But the WWF ran the first ever event there and drew a sellout crowd of 23,000 folks. Uh, Dave argues that there were reports that it was heavily papered and all over the radio uh, the day of the show, saying that there were free tickets available at different shops. Meltzer does a poll and everyone agrees. The worst match on SummerSlam is Undertaker versus Undertaker. He writes, the WWF's lack of talent depth showed itself once again at SummerSlam, a well-produced show with a phenomenal title match, followed by possibly the worst main event in pay-per-view history. What do you think of that? Fuck Dave Meltzer. And first of all, you know, going back to your comment about the United Center, we did run the United Center, and the WrestleMania we were talking about took place after this event. Correct. This we had run first. it, and it was way too expensive. We didn't, we didn't like it, and we liked Rosemont for the ambiance and everything else, and it was a cheaper building to run. But as far, you know, there's a lot of things, and it's real easy to sit behind your computer or your typewriter and judge when you've never taken a bump, you've never been in the ring, and you've never put your own balls on the line to promote something or actually produce something other than, like I said, sit behind your computer screen and sit there and critique and bitch and moan about somebody um, like Meltzer and these, these fake news people do. So fuck him. In his goddamn opinion, because what they don't know is what did take place behind the scenes. And what they don't know is what we did have planned and what we didn't get to have come across because the match, like I said, it was designed to be a one off. It was designed to be a gimmick match. It was designed to simply bring Undertaker back and have him slay a dragon. The. The match, because Bret Hart and Owen Hart had a cage match earlier in the show that went 20 minutes heavy. So all of a sudden, you have a match at the very end of the night with Undertaker and and a guy who is nervous as shit, who in his mind is auditioning for a job in Brian Lee, who has their match now condensed into roughly about 10 or 12 minutes, whatever the hell it was, so much of it was the entrance. So much of it was the pantomime. So much of it was the build that we didn't have time to tell because of things going longer earlier in the show. So, again, I, it sounds like I'm making excuses, and I am, because that's what happened, and shit happens. So it wasn't great. It wasn't uh, it wasn't the match of the year. It didn't do four stars or six stars in the fucking Tokyo Dome. I don't give a fuck. It was an attraction. It was meant to be an attraction. It was meant to be a way to bring Undertaker back and have him slay a dragon on top at a pay-per-view. And didn't accomplish that. Didn't deliver. But there were extenuating circumstances that, that made that happen. How hot was uh, Undertaker at Brett when he walks through the back and knows that he went 20 minutes long and just slaughtered Pretty fucking hot. He was hot. What's that sound like? Don't do an he, impression. Just tell me. No, he was fucking hot. I, I no, You know what? Nobody, nobody was there for the confrontation because no one wanted to be there. But there, there, Taker did go and speak to Brett. Just let him know, hey, he wasn't happy with it. I mean, well, I don't know. It wasn't heated. Taker's not that kind of a guy. But he did have a conversation with him that night. 
And no, and no, no one was there. So no one was witness. Only people that know what happened in that is Undertaker and Brett. Meltzer would write, what seemed like a cute idea materialized into watering down the drawing power of the company's top attraction. Another cute idea, like using Leslie Nielsen of the Naked Gun movies at the, uh, and at this show, his sidekick George Kennedy in search of The Undertaker flopped just as bad as the two were ha- hampered by an incredibly vapid script. As if someone came up with the bones of an idea, but nobody had any of the meat, they did the idea anyway. When it was over, the show, even though it had a few great angles and one excellent match, came off due to the last impression as a lackluster major event. I'm of the opinion that if the Undertaker-Undertaker match had been put on in the third slot on the card, its impact at the end would have been minimal, and fans leaving with a cage match would have left on a much brighter note, and a thumbs-up ratio would have been far better. My my only guess is that the Undertaker-Undertaker wouldn't bomb like it did, obviously, and they like to end shows with a babyface conquering all, and the cage match ended with a face getting destroyed at the end. But that mindset ended up leaving a show on a flat note rather than a high note. The natural comparison to The Clash a few days earlier, where The Clash had much more exciting excitement and much more meaning. Uh, ultimately, of course, The Undertaker won uh, after 9 minutes and 10 seconds. Undertaker Mark Calloway won. Against Undertaker Bradley. Well, Meltzer could take his, sho- his thumb and shove it up his ass. In the match, they do a seven-minute uh, ring entrance with Paul Bear coming out alone, and then the co- coffin that Callaway was buried in at the Royal Rumble was wheeled out by some hooded men, and uh, inside the casket... Druids, pal, druids. Uh, who played the druids here? Just uh, Fuck if I know, just guys. It was me, Austin. Uh, However, (laughs) that's what I was hoping you'd go for. Uh, However, in the casket was a giant urn, and when Bear opened the urn, we got a nice thunder and lightning show. Finally, Calloway showed up. The special effects was good, but it was done the minute the bell rang. One guy in the ultra-slow motion has limitations. Two guys doing it kills the match. It didn't help that Lee seemed lost in the ring and that the two didn't look enough alike, and the size difference was noticeable. It was as as if everyone knew the ending once Callaway showed up. No heat at all. Even McMahon had to acknowledge it, trying to get over the crowd was stunned into silence, because there was no tension in the air, so it was just dull silence, not stunned silence. Leaves the chokeslam and a tombstone, but Callaway sat up both times. Callaway reversed the second tombstone, then delivered two more across Lee's arms and pinned him. He then rolled him into the casket, thereby killing the gimmick. Word we get is Lee will return with a new look as a biker character with no acknowledgement of this prior role. Leslie Nielsen and George Kennedy ended the show with a skit as weak as the match. Negative one star. So, your thoughts on the match, the build-up, and Leslie Nielsen and George Kennedy, which I know you really enjoyed. The match was horrible. The match was horrible, but the match you know, had its limitations, and they had to chop a whole lot of it out that they had. The match was one of those that had to be laid out and tell a long story, and much longer than what it lasted going out there. And Brian probably was lost because what they had planned and what they had worked out prior to that, they were ad-libbing, and they were just trying to get through it and not have a finish take place as they were off the air 
So we had to get the damn thing done. We didn't have a network at that time. We couldn't go over. We had to get done by uh, 10.55 at night. So, yeah, it sucked. It wasn't great. But the I'll stand by it. Hey, it was my story. If you don't like it, great. You didn't like it. It's not everybody's cup of tea. It was a story to bring The Undertaker back and to have an Undertaker versus Undertaker, the feeling being that the greatest foe of The Undertaker would be himself looking at himself in the mirror and having to face the old evil Undertaker. Uh, Execution probably could have been better, but then again, that's Monday morning quarterbacking and hindsight being 2020. We we had fun with it. We, We did what we wanted to do, and... Like I said, it was always intended to be a one-off and a way to bring Undertaker back. The Leslie Nielsen involvement, I thought that those skits leading up to it were some of the uh, best stuff we'd ever done. They were clever. They were well done. They were well-written, well-produced by David Sahadi. And people to this day still talk about it. And Leslie Nielsen was an absolute pro in every sense of the word from him being early on set and working with us to him going to the uh, all-nude bar in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where all they wore were knee pads, and just being an all-around great guy. And to tell you what a great guy he was, George Kennedy, who's one of his best friends, we we had no deal with George Kennedy. But Leslie Nielsen asked us to use George Kennedy that day because George was in a in a bad way at that point in his life. And he said, just use him, make him feel loved because I'd like to have him be a part of this. And Leslie Nielsen offered to pay George out of his pay. And Vince, of course, wouldn't do that. George, uh, Vince paid George and all was well. But I just was always impressed by that. And Leslie Nielsen is my favorite celebrity I ever worked with. Wow, that's quite a statement right there. Yep. He was great. He was great. But it was what it was, and it it uh, could have been better, but a lot of things could have been better. And shit happens sometimes. I'm not going to take away from Brett and Owen's match, because that match was great, too. It was excellent. It was just too long for what it, we went over what it was allotted. So... Let's talk about the uh, the fall of 1994 and where we go from here. Meltzer writes a piece in September being very critical uh, of the talent and the way that they had been booked, writing something like, no matter how strong the storyline may be, does anyone really buy Jim Neidhart as the lead heel in the promotion? Um, saying that there's not anything wrong that The Undertaker, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Owen Hart, Diesel, or Razor had done but that there didn't seem to be enough star depth in the show. Uh, he also, when was Jim Neidhart the lead heel? I think he was joking that there was a situation where you guys couldn't bring back anything from the past and freshen it up. Okay. Anyway, let's talk about survivor series. You guys start building for it. It's going to take place in San Antonio uh, the plan was for it to be Bret Hart defending his title against Bob Backlund and a little bit of a new generation versus old generation showdown for the title. Undertaker and Yokozuna in a casket match. Uh, the first time Hart and Backlund work out, though, it's uh, a house show in Utica, New York, and it's September 26th. And Meltzer reports that it flopped. 
and apparently so bad that the company lost all the confidence in their promotional ability to try to sell the show. Uh, the next day, they do a series of television tapings in Poughkeepsie, and during a Yokozuna squash, they play The Undertaker's music. Yoko freaks out and runs away, trips and falls. So this feels identical as it did a year prior where they built up this Undertaker casket match for the Royal Rumble. So we start the year with this Undertaker uh, Royal Rumble casket match against Yokozuna, and we're going to finish it at Survivor Series. Same opponent, same match. They're still doing lots of stuff with the USWA. Uh, Undertaker versus Sid Vicious draws really, really well on October 17th. It's their second biggest show of the year. Uh, they also come back and do it again um, with Sid Vicious Undertaker on November 4th. This time it draws a little less, but it's still the third largest crowd of the year. Uh, I guess you got USWA, right? Yeah, for USWA. I guess and how, you, what was that crowd? 3,100 and 2,500. Okay, yeah. So gates of 16,000 and 14,000. But that's big money for them at the time. And as, you, and as anybody listening knows, they were paying the guys 50 bucks. If they were in the main event. So, um, they do a series of television tapings in Bethlehem in November where Luger and the undertaker seem to be pushed as the top baby faces. They're the only guys who get the big entrances and pyro and so forth. Uh, and then undertaker and IRS start to feud death and taxes, uh, where the undertaker has IRS come to the ring with two guys dressed in grim reaper outfits. Uh, somehow, the feud is over that even when you die, you can't escape paying your taxes. Please tell me this is real. That's real. This is amazing that I freestyled that, and then boom, there it is. Well, yeah. I got again. I'll I'll, I'll post the picture when this post of uh, the vignettes that we shot with IRS in the cemetery and we shot them during the day. Now, normally when we shoot undertaker vignettes, we would shoot those all at night in a, you know, smoky cemetery. And usually I, I would try and pick a day where it was extremely either flesh freezing winds, which we shot vignettes in flesh freezing winds or pouring rain. One of the two, we would always have to have inclement weather if we were shooting undertaker vignettes in a, a cemetery. But with, IRS, we shot him in the middle of the day, and we had a hole dug, and we had the casket propped up on the dirt on the side of it. As we're shooting vignettes, a car pulls up. They stop. They get out of the car, and I'm thinking, somebody needs to go over and intercept these people so they don't walk into my shot. And the funeral uh, director who was out there watching the shoot, he runs over and he comes over to me just, I mean, nervous as can be. I said, what's wrong? He says, it's their plot. Oh, my God. This woman had purchased side-by-side plots for her and her husband, and she was bringing him over to surprise him and show him their final resting place. And when they pull up, there's a freshly dug hole <laughs> and a casket and all these camera equipment. And the guy gets out and he says, he goes, wow. And he says, I, I guess she knew something I didn't know. But as we're shooting, yeah, people that had purchased the plot came up to see it. But those were fun. That was, that was some good shit. The only two things you can count on are death and taxes. I love it. 
Uh, after Survivor Series, it's announced that uh, they're still going to be running A and B house show loops here. And the A-team shows are going to be Bob Backlund versus Bret Hart, Undertaker versus IRS, and Shawn Michaels and Diesel versus the Head Shrinkers. I can only imagine what was on the B shows. Uh, Survivor Series, here we go. Third place for the best match, Undertaker versus Yokozuna. It happened on November 23rd, San Antonio. It drew an evenly mixed set of responses. Yes, sir. And, and by the way, no, it wasn't a desperation. Oh, my God, there was a bad match at a house show. The plan was always to do the return. Yoko got rid of Taker. We planned on having Taker come back, Taker versus Taker, then go to Yoko. It was not a knee-jerk reaction. All right. Well, your bitch boy said it was a knee-jerk reaction to a Brett Backlund match. I don't think he said that exactly. So Meltzer says that the overall reaction to the show was just kind of average. Uh, what did you think about Survivor Series 1994? I thought it was a good show. I, I thought that it was it delivered, and again, we were still in a rebuilding process with Brett and Luger and everybody, so it it served its purpose. We we got to the next point. Of course, the uh, decision here is made to do a diesel turn and then have Backlund become champion, even though he's just going to be transitional champion. You guys just wanted to get the belt off of Brett so you could get it to diesel without hurting Brett in the process, right? Correct. Well, the, plus Vince had had fallen in love with, uh, with Kevin Nash at that point. God, what a baby face. Look at that big bastard. So yeah, rather than rather than have him drop it to uh, have Brett drop it to him, baby face, baby face, he wanted to get that heel transition. So the Undertaker gets the win against Yokozuna in the casket match after about fifteen minutes. This time he has Chuck Norris guard the aisle to keep the heels away from interfering. Remember Royal Rumble ninety four? Uh, and according to Meltzer, he thought it was the second biggest pop or the biggest pop in the show so far. They do the cool thunder and lightning entrance for the undertaker here, uh, which is a cool special effect. At one point, uh, the undertaker decks Jim Cornette. He kicks out of the, uh, casket, just refusing to let it close. Eventually Bundy and Bigelow come down and distract Chuck Norris. So IRS can run in from the other side and put the undertaker in a sleeper. They roll him into the casket, and eventually Yokozuna recovers from a flying clothesline and goes to close the casket, but Undertaker instead grabs him by the throat. Double J runs down and takes what Meltzer calls a weak-looking kick from Chuck Norris and sells it huge. Motherfucker, that's Chuck Norris giving a sidekick. Any other mortal human being would not survive. Jarrett ran away. Undertaker hits another flying clothesline, the DDT, the tombstone, and then breaks Fuji's flag and puts it over Yokozuna in the casket. Two and a half stars, according to Dave Meltzer. What did you think of this match, and how did you think it compared to the Royal Rumble casket match? I thought both were good. I thought this one was good. I thought the whole show was good overall. Accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. Eventually, Meltzer would write, 1994 would be a year where The Undertaker would die, be resurrected, but when he came back, his drawing power would be nearly dead. 
Yeah, he'd never be. You know what? He'd probably never be able to draw another motherfucking penny after that because Nostra fucking Meltzer <laughs> fucking says he can't draw now. So, you know, folks, uh, go ahead and put that in your pipe and smoke it. Uh, here's something fun. You haven't got me this fucking hot in a long time. Let me you make, haven't quoted. You haven't quoted all your misquotes in a long time. So let fuck me make, him. Let me make you happy for a minute. Make me happy. It was it was reported at the end of 1994 in the Observer that IcoPro was sold and is no longer a part of the Titan structure. I don't know when we'll talk about IcoPro again. Give me some uh, good IcoPro stories. Doctor Squat. Fred Hatfield. Um, God, you know, I got there after IcoPro. I got back uh, from my hiatus after IcoPro and the, all that shit had started. The one good thing of IcoPro was the IcoPro protein bars. They were kind of like a bit of honey. They weren't bad. But the rest of that stuff was worse than god awful. Have you ever, have you ever, I don't like licorice. I don't like black I licorice. Hate, I hate licorice. And if you okay. like licorice, unsubscribe from this fucking show right now. I don't even want you as a listener. Yeah. And the, the IcoPro drops that you put under your tongue, the best way I could describe them, it would be that they tasted like bad black licorice, but I can't think of anything that tastes worse than black licorice other than the IcoPro drops. Wait, wait, wait. I just want you to say the candy one more time. What can't you stand? What type of candy? Black licorice. What the fuck are you laughing at? How do you say it, hillbilly boy? I just love the way you say it. It's my new favorite word for you to pronounce. What is it again? You tell me what word do you want me to pronounce? The word after black. How do you say it? I don't say it. I call I call them shits Twizzlers. Okay, but what is a Twizzler? Red. Red what? I don't know. I'm a red. I'm a hillbilly boy. It's licorice. <laughs> How the fuck do you pronounce it? Do you ever do you ever have some Twizzlers when you go to the theater? It's the theater. I love when you say that too. It makes me very happy. Okay, let's get out of here. Let's talk about um, the wrestling server one more time. Oh uh, God, damn! Are we about done? Yeah, we are. We're wrapping up. Nineteen ninety four end of the year awards. Best baby face number Undertaker. five for the Undertaker. Most improved, number most one charismatic, and most overrated were all honorable mentions. Most disgusting promotional tactic was number four for the Undertaker death and resurrection. The worst match, number two, was Undertaker versus Undertaker. An honorable mention was uh, Undertaker versus Yokozuna at the Royal Rumble. The worst feud of the year, hands down, Undertaker versus Yokozuna. Best gimmick, number one, the Undertaker. Again, the worst gimmick. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's look at that. Okay, in, in all your reports, we already talked about how Undertaker versus Yokozuna was one of the best drawing yep. Yep. things we had. But yet, this dipshit talks about it being <laughs> worst feud. Yeah. So, obviously, he has no finger on the pulse of what the, the real fan wants. That's all i got to say about that. John Paul Shellnut would say, that's all I got to say about that. I feel like we should put out a quick word here. We mentioned him earlier. Brian Lee, when they said he'd be repackaged as a biker, he was. That was 1994. He comes back in 1997 as Chains, as a member of the DOA, the Disciples of Apocalypse. Um, Another quick little factoid about the Undertaker's title win. When he first won it, his very first title win, 
against Hulk Hogan. I believe this made The Undertaker the youngest WWF world champion in history uh, until Yokozuna broke his record. That's at least the way I remember it. Is that the way you remember it? I think so. Was he 24? I don't know. Yeah, it would have been. He would have been uh, 24, 25. I know you've got a fun story to tell about traveling with The Undertaker. Uh, and and I'm, I want to get to that. But I do want to go ahead and just mention briefly that the reason we're doing this, of course, is The Undertaker uh, is obviously a Hall of Famer and just had his last match. What many think is his last match at WrestleMania. And the Big Show said The Undertaker, at least in his opinion, is the greatest professional wrestler of all time. And a lot of people may discount this because it's not some famous historian. And maybe Big Show has a unique perspective because he's a big man. Um but so many big men have come and gone in the sport, but with the exception of Andre, none have had the longevity of the undertaker. And I found that to be pretty interesting from his perspective. And I also want to share this with you in an interview that Vince McMahon did with muscle and fitness in the February, 2015 issue, he was asked, do you have a favorite superstar? And you would think he might dance around a bit before answering and giving some sort of hand response but instead he says that would be undertaker because of his loyalty his longevity and his extraordinary commitment to his character we have lots of fun creating fun superstars try to crack each other up from time to time and we've all tried to get the undertaker to break character and we can't do it he is such a professional and an extraordinary human being behind the character he's committed to his craft and has worked through injuries I don't know that you can get a nicer quote from Vince McMahon about your work as a professional. Do you have anything? And I agree with every word he said. Because there, there is he, Undertaker. You know, people ask me, who's your favorite? My favorite is Undertaker. And that's prefer, professionally and personally. Um, dear friend of mine and just an extraordinary athlete, extraordinary performer and deserves every single thing that he's ever gotten in this business. I know you've told the story before, but I want you to share it again quickly. When you were first traveling with Mark on the road, when you were managing him as Brother Love, I believe you told this on the 1990 Survivor Series story or show, but let's do it again here. Share the story when you guys leave the building, you're lost. Maybe you're in Chattanooga. I forget. You pull over for directions, and maybe... A not so great neighborhood. Take it from there. Well, we had left the building very quickly, and Undertaker was wearing the makeup that made his eyes look really dark. And I was wearing my brother love makeup, and and we just darted out. We like put wet washcloths on our face and quickly washed our faces and jumped in the car as quickly as we could, going from Chattanooga driving to Atlanta, Georgia. And we wanted to get there before the bar closed. So we're hauling ass, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in a somewhat unsavory neighborhood. Lost. Can't find the highway. So we pull over kind of into a gas station, and there are a group of guys standing outside, and we pull up, and Undertaker has the seat set way back because it's like a Ford Taurus, and he's 6'7", so he has to have the seat leaned way back just so he can fit in the damn thing, and he's driving. And I roll the window down. There's my bright red you know, peach face, um, going, Hey buddy, can you tell us, can you get us to the highway? We're trying to get to the highway to Atlanta, whatever the hell it was. And this guy comes walking up to us, sauntering up 
very slowly, grabbing his private parts and saying, well, hey, uh, looky here. And he actually did say, looky here. You know, maybe y'all can help me out some and y'all can uh, maybe. And he starts like he's going to hold us up or just wants money or something. When out of nowhere, Undertaker, Mark Calloway, does a sit-up. And by the way, he's still wearing his trench coat. He's got a black T-shirt on, but he's still wearing his trench coat. And he does a sit-up in the car and snaps his head and looks at the guy. And now he's got the, he's got the pale face. He's got the dark purple eyes and all this shit. And this guy takes one look at him. His eyes got big as saucers and started backpedaling, so much so he trips on himself and says, all right, well, look here. This is what y'all need to do. Y'all need to go right down here. Two blocks, take a right, you're going to take the very first left, and that's going to put you right on the highway. Y'all need to get the hell out of here. And he couldn't get away from us fast enough. But that was my, one of my favorite stories of just being with Taker the first time. And, and he saw him, and, and, and oh, I'm sorry, and I left out the best part. He goes, man, he looked like that. That dude looked like he just killed somebody. And he did. <laughs> uh, real quick, WrestleMania 10. I've always been fascinated by the idea that one of the biggest characters in the company isn't here. I know he had asked for some time off. Uh, was there ever any consideration for trying to call him at the last minute and getting him involved in WrestleMania 10? We would have liked to have had him involved, but no, there wasn't. Uh, real briefly, tell everybody how Paul Bear came into the WWF. I know we covered it on the 1990 Survivor Series, but I know a lot of people will want it here as well. I had been managing Undertaker. I was given the opportunity to I also work behind the scenes. Duh. And Vince came to me and said, I'm going to give you a choice. You can either work in front of the camera and be Undertaker's manager full time because the package of the Undertaker and the house shows, it wasn't the same without a manager. And if I did that, I would have to give up my job behind the scenes producing television. I chose producing television. And we were looking for someone to manage Undertaker and take my place. And Percy Pringle had inquired about working. So they brought Percy up just for a general interview in in general to say, hey, what would you like to do? And they said, what have you done in the past? Percy said, well, I'm a licensed mortician and everybody popped because, oh, my God, we're looking for somebody for the uh, Undertaker. And Paul Bear was born and... Uh, Road Warrior Hawk is the one that gave him his name. What about Paul Bearer? And the decision was made to drop Kane from his name. Uh, How did that come about? Just because Vince liked The Undertaker. He didn't like the name Kane at that time. He just liked simply The Undertaker. And the whole storyline of how Kane came about will be on the poll uh, coming up in September of this year will be upon, believe it or not, the 20th anniversary of the debut of the Kane character. Uh, real quick, I know we talked about it, but let's touch on it one more time. Who was doing, like, sketches of the character and who would have helped come up with the initial drawings for what we became to know the Undertaker's outfit? As the art department, Debbie Bonanzio and her crew. I don't know the one person who actually did it. it. They had a whole department down there to do it, entire third floor. 
and uh, Jim Johnston did the music, correct? Correct. Anything else you can think of we need to uh, mention on The Undertaker before we kind of put a bow on 93, 94, the early years of The Dead Man? Yeah, there's so many things, and I'm sure we will cover it. You know, like you said, over the next 12 years, we've got enough Undertaker stories to, to last us a while. So I think it's enough for this for this run. Well, we appreciate you checking it out. Uh, we look forward to uh, being back here with you next week at noon. Follow us on Twitter. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey It's Conrad, and we will be back next week right here on Something to Wrestle With. Say my name. Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.